Habe, it's time for you to bring the sizzle. And the sizzle or the steak? <laughs> Both. <laughs> yeah, we got a we got a man. Uh, let me shoot this over to Prodigal man. I Prodigal man, I love this guy. So let's get Prodigal in here. Let's see if we can get Abe to come back. Abe. All right, now what I really want to know is, you know, Shabam made that comment about what he's paying for where he's at. Is that in Canadian dollars or U.S.? That's what I want to know. Oh, man, that's, that's I, I just beautiful. I just want to be there. I think we should all go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I don't we, care. We about... didn't think it was going to go that high that soon. Like, I mean, we we were thinking, you know, midsummer is going to hit $100. We're going to fly to Mexico. Everything's going to be all right. Not in February. Oh, so now, good, so what we did is we moved it. So what we did, Marcellus, is we bumped it up to one hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> Prodigal, it's nice to have you come up here. How you doing, buddy? Oh, Evan? good. Just gonna listen for a while. All right, all right. No worries. No worries. We we have somebody uh, below us with, that would love to see one hundred and fifty dollars. I think uh, it's got a nice D there for a picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, that's going to be a special occasion. That, that's going to be fireworks. Straight fireworks. Uh, what do we have here? Let's see if Matt would like to come up here. How you doing, Matt? How's everything with you? Uh, going pretty good. Uh, tuned in late to the to the previous session there, so I didn't get to hear kind of what everybody had to say about the SPR at least I have I have my suspicions that uh, yeah. <laughs> it's probably probably a nothing burger but uh, I don't know just kind of wanted to join in. So the consensus of the room for that is short term bearish, long term bullish, right? Yeah, I mean that's, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, um, yeah. it's uh, it's uh, you know I hate hate to think that like we're all kind of group thinking on on the same thing, but it's just hard to come to a different conclusion. I, I haven't heard a you know, a case to the other side yet. I mean, there's only, there's only so much that we can do and every, every sort of act that the government is taking just seems to be intent on increasing demand in the face of short supply. And that's just bass backwards for, you know, what to do from a policy perspective, but just my two cents. <clears throat> yeah. I'm, I can't wait. I, I got to get some time to, uh, to watch your interview with that you had with um, Max, I'm looking forward to that. Oh yeah, that was that was a fun conversation. I mean, we we didn't really get deep into the details on anything. I mean, I think you know, especially for folks who who haven't talked about coal um, or you know aren't really familiar with it, it's best to have kind of a a base level understanding and a broad background and kind of history of kind of where we came from. And you know, I think one of the points that I tried to make on that podcast was that. You know, coal's already been through the ringer with regard to, uh, you know, the the willingness of, of governments to push down supply because um, demand doesn't really care about policy, right? <clears throat> and if you if you push down supply to the point where it becomes inelastic and can't respond to demand, then uh, then then you wind up in the situations that we've had now. And I mean, we're we're heading into shoulder season, but I'm getting ready for the next, you know, natural gas inventories versus coal inventories. Uh, battle that uh, you know that we had last summer because it's uh, it, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out yet but um, we're going to have another version of that um, I think in in power markets this summer and uh, and in oil uh, 
the same way. I mean, just we're, we're so short on molecules. Diesel is so short right now in particular. Um, that's just, um, it, it, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting for me. Who's not, uh, you know, an oil and gas analyst, uh, to, to see how the, all of this plays out. You know, I, I can, yeah. I consume that data. So it's, it's how, how the market moves is pretty important for everything that I do. So. Yeah. You, you know, I've been banging on that distillates thing <laughs> more so than a lot of people, I think, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I know there'll be a lot of people in here who who invest in you know companies that produce quite a bit of gas, and and I think it's important for those of us who invest in that space to uh, to understand the the connection, you know, the dynamics between coal and gas and how they're they're linked a lot together. Cool. Uh, sorry, um, Matt, could you give us the lowdown uh, in uh, you know the coal, the land of coal? How are things looking? <laughs> uh, expensive. They're looking expensive. Uh, so, you know, the, the big elephant in the room is, uh, you know, can Russia continue to ship? Um, it, yes, is, is sort of the short term answer. There, there's a lot of production that is in uh, near the areas where the conflicts are right in the in the Donbass region and then a little bit further to the north uh, and to the west of that in the in the Kuzbas region. And so output from those operations looks like it's fallen by about 10% relative to pre, pre-war. Uh, it, <clears throat> the, the other sort of area of production is up in Siberia. Those, those trains and those mines seem to be operating reasonably well. Um, there's a little bit of met coal up there that's kind of hitting the markets. Um, but so far, um, it looks like contracted shipments are sort of, you know, at least continuing to leave the country, albeit on a, on a, reduced basis um you know especially you know for the uh for the ports in the area of the conflict so um the the question is basically is europe going to continue to take russian material um i think i think we're going to be cool with china taking russian material obviously i think i think india is going to be able to continue to take it uh without consequence so it really comes down to europe um what's europe going to do if they don't take russian coal that's 50 percent of their imports uh, or thereabouts uh, on the thermal side. It's, uh, I think, about 30 or 35% of their imports on the metallurgical coal side. Then we're going to have, we're just going to have high electricity prices. Uh, I mean, you guys can tell me, like, what your what your view is on TTF uh, prices in the near term. I, I, you know, again, I'm a consumer of that data. But on the coal side, it's, uh, just, there don't seem to be many solutions if developed markets are going to freeze out Russia. Abe, the floor is yours. Abe, are you with us? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. I just cut in and out. I was just going to ask no the worries. question um, with regards to the prior gentleman in terms of uh, his discussion around coal. I think the question is, um, what um, uh, what choice do the uh, Northern Europeans really have at this juncture? in terms of rejecting uh, Russian coal um, or uh, Russian energy in general? And I think the the answer is pretty well known. Uh, It's pretty much next to zero. Um, Perhaps they could uh, limit or or perhaps reduce, um, but there is no substitution uh, that exists today, like none that is available, immediate, that would act as a truly material um, 
you know, mitigation plan. So I, I think that's completely out of question. And I've said this before, you really have to look at um, the the policy that is being forward right now, especially by Germany, that essentially runs the show in the European Union. Um, they are walking back everything, everything uh, from energy to commodities to you name it. They cannot afford uh, to shut down uh, Russian imports of commodities. Their whole industry would shut down. Um, you know, their auto sector depends on uh, Russian steel, uh, hot and cold rolled steel. So, so good luck to to that. And this is all just in time. Well, Abe, well, well, hey, you're going to see this week, right? Uh, Russia is going to make them call their bluff. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so this week you're going to, I mean, you're right 100%. They don't have the facilities. They, to, they, there's no vessels to ship it. They don't have the LNG facility. There's, not, there's nowhere they can go. And Russia knows this. And Russia, we're going to see how much they push this ruble play. I mean, the ruble is back to where it was pre-invasion. Anybody who's looking at the situation and says that uh, Russia is going to weaken over time because it's been militarily delayed for what some may believe are some objectives in the country are not looking at what's going on economically and geopolitically. Uh, the, the idea of Turkey uh, shutting down uh, commerce uh, is insane. If you look at Turkey's actions uh, uh, throughout the entire yep. invasion. Right. So, I mean, this is all very Western centric uh, thinking. When the people don't see the geopolitical sand shifting, right? Uh, Russia's meeting with India next week. They had a big statement uh, uh, from both UAE and China recently, their foreign ministers. So uh, geopolitically, uh, Russia and China are strengthening, and uh, they're playing a very good combination. Uh, continue. I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah, and I'll, I'll chime in. Yeah, no, on, no. You, just on you, the coal you... side there, uh, just, just so yeah. everybody knows. <clears throat> um, they're... So we have to think about it in two different two different sections, right? So we have to think about the Met side. Um, you know, Russia is significant portion of of Europe's metallurgical coal imports, um, about thirty percent. Um, however, if you look at um, how much coal the U.S. and Canada are exporting to China right now, it's about on the order of uh, <clears throat> one million tons per month apiece. And uh, if you tabulate all of the imports from Russia to Japan, Europe, and South Korea, it is roughly about the same amount. So there, there is a, a possible situation where China imports Russian material and then Japan trade flows shift from, uh, you know, from, uh, from Russia to Canada and the U.S., um, and then China just basically imports from Russia and Mongolia and makes up their, their slate. So that's on the Met side. On the Indonesian side, uh, sorry, on the on the thermal coal side, Ch most of China's imports are from Indonesia. So there is the possibility that should Europe decide to freeze out Russian coal, then um, that would and, and China import uh, additional Russian thermal coal tons and Mongolian thermal coal, then that freezes out mostly Indonesian tons. There's not a lot of U.S. at all going over there. There's not a whole lot of Canadian coal going over there. Those Indonesian tons would mostly uh, move over into India, who could accept a lot of that tonnage. And that would sort of like push some of the tons that are going into India from South Africa, from uh, from the U.S., from and from Canada uh, up into Europe. So it's it takes an adjustment of trade flows. It'd be about three to four months for that all to um, to get resolved, which would be the balance of summer. So this is this is not like a small thing. 
but there are enough BTUs out there in the world, at least on the coal side, to mitigate those trade flows. It just there's there's a lot of moving parts, and it'll take a very long time for for all of that to resolve. I hope that hope that makes sense. But there there'd have to be incentive, right? I mean, uh, Indonesia is in China's backyard and Russia, and I'm you know I don't know much about coal trading, but I'm assuming these contracts are long term at least. And it would have to show a willingness of China to say, "Okay, we're going to do this when China's shown the exact opposite in this entire month. If anything, uh, they have been the reason why Russia has survived economically. So, I mean, it it really depends on China wanting to play ball. No. Well, I mean, it's the the incentive is price and revenue. Right. So if if China decides to play ball with Russia, which I I think is probably I mean, first of all, the, the coal quality that they would be able to import from Russia on the thermal coal side is superior to the, to the subbituminous, you know, kind of 4,000, uh, kilocalorie BTU, um, uh, you know, five, uh, 4,000 BTU coal that, that they could import from Indonesia. So, so it's a net win for China from a, from just a heat standpoint. Um, <clears throat> Indonesia earlier in the year had put a ban on exports so that they, so that they could, uh, supply their own power plants, right? Because the, the international prices were so high that, that producers were uh, preferring to export as opposed to, I think they have a mandate for 25% of, of production to be sold to domestic power plants. So they produce a lot, so it doesn't take long for them to make that up. But uh, the, in Indonesia would be incentivized to, you know, especially if we had a, a bifurcation in the market where the price moved down, Indonesia could go ahead and supply their market at an unfavorable price, and let the um, and let the international price run up, and then and then move into India. So I, I think there's enough financial incentive for for those tons to move around. But like I said, this, it just takes a long time for those trade flows to move. And then, you know, how long does a political decision take? I mean, this is this gets way above my pay grade really quickly. I have to react to that data as opposed to project it. If that makes sense. No, I agree. I mean, listen, this is stuff where it's not just going to be based on dollars, right? Uh, especially with China's uh, aggression and the, you know, the South China Sea and what they're doing, and now they militarize their islands, right? Uh, this is what people, you know, I'm not saying you, I'm saying in general, when, when I have conversations, especially when you're dealing with nations like China and Russia, uh, unlike uh, Western nations where, you know, corporations and, uh, you know, private entities are, are basically have almost free reign and control the state. Here, it's clear that these more autocratic regimes uh, have more long-term girls and basically wield the power of the state in regards to these uh, specific industries they view as national security. So as much as it might make dollar sense, if uh, you know Indonesia is building up its navy, they've signed a number of contracts specifically because they're scared of China. It really depends. You know, it, it, there's a lot of, like you said, it comes down to the politics, at least when you're dealing with those two countries. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Indonesia's got a swap line with the U.S., so they know where their bread gets buttered on that sense, too, right? So uh, I was just going to, um, and, and thanks for chiming in. That actually um, provides uh, some some great context. Um, I think uh, in addition to that, um, you also have to look at the current uh, supply chain mess that is um, uh, in existence worldwide right now. This is not going to be um, an easy switch um, if it were to actually occur. And I think that... Um, um, uh, I think uh, uh, Prodigo said it uh, said it very very well. This is not going to be about just dollars and cents. This is uh, really about um, you know geopolitical repositioning. Um, and I you know I said this. I feel like a bit of a broken record. I said it in the, in the past basis, but the, but the reality is 
um, the, the the Russian state right now is is pretty much backed into the corner. So they they are going to use you know the nuclear option. The nuclear option is um, they're going to hurt us where it really hurts us, uh, and that is on the inflation trade. And you know, make no mistake, um, I believe I truly believe that uh, that Putin was was playing chess, where the rest of us were playing checkers. Um, and that uh, the timing of all of this was not uh, coincidental. It was not coincidental at all. Uh, he's well aware that um, the inflation, um, you know, story, the narrative that currently exists is uh, ravaging uh, the West. It's ravaging his country, too. But the difference is that unlike Russia, we unfortunately in the West, North America, we manage shit quarter by quarter because that's the way Wall Street likes it. And so. Um, it's a completely different narrative, uh, a completely different long-term plan. Um, and uh, the reality is that you are witnessing, in my view, um, geopolitical shifts that are going to um, really create the new partnerships for the next 50 years. This is not a small little deal. Um, and uh, I, I certainly don't believe that if the war ended tomorrow morning, that you'd have the lifting of sanctions. That That's not going to happen. So I think we need to start thinking um, longer term. We have to start getting more comfortable with the reality that even if the war does finish, the the political ramifications of what has just occurred are going to be a new Cold War era, which means that nothing is technically going to change from the West. They're going to continue to um, try to screw the Russians every way that they can. Either that is you know, either uh, eliminating them from G20, uh, you know, swift transactions, you name it, it's all going to happen. And hence why, you know, it's going to be really interesting over the next week as to how the Germans play ball, because the reality is, if the Germans want to freeze their nuts off, um, they're going to be freezing, um, you know, come next winter, and uh, no one's going to be able to save them. Um, You know, there's no LNG terminals, there is absolutely jack shit. And you can't have a $3.9 trillion economy grind to a halt. And their entire economy, by the way, is predicated on on exports. It's not a massive domestic consumption uh, market. Their whole GDP claim to fame is exports. So um, if the European Union goes to shit, and by the way, the European Union is in recession, uh, they just haven't got the memo yet. But it's well they're they're well aware that this is the state that they're in. Um, my point is that uh, I don't um, think that anything much of anything is going to change. We've created a bit of a mess, and I say we because um, I, I think that there's sort of blame all around, and we can get into the politics, and I'm not really don't really want to get into it. But Ukraine is kind of sitting naked at the moment. And uh, the West, I think we made a lot of promises to them that we would come and assist them. And the reality is they're going to get the shit kicked out of them. And um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the greater game plan is the, the Russians aren't going to walk back, uh, guys. This is uh, it, it's all or nothing now. Yeah, but, but it doesn't even I mean, I'll interject, but it doesn't even matter if yeah. Ukraine takes back the entire country, including Donbass and, and Crimea. Right. At this point. Not only are geopolitical rivals seeing what we've done in regards to seizing uh, reserves in central banks and in regards to the economic sanctions we put on Russia, uh, they've already started building a parallel system for non-U.S. denominated trade. That's already in the works and that's not going anywhere. It might just be a little foothold now, but it's going to be a, 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 a substitute that grows because countries 
uh, whether they're, you know, it, it, this could be a, a dry run for Russia uh, if they ever do try to do Taiwan. They don't want to, not Russia, I mean China for Taiwan. They might not want to face the repercussions that Russia did. India itself, which you see with all this talk in regards to uh, rupee, ruple denominated trade, maybe using the yuan in regards to a stabilizer, uh, they all have geopolitical conflicts, whether it's Kashmir, whether it's Pakistan, whether they, they, they have seen what the West can do. And when you look at the West and people don't want to admit it, and I'm American born and raised and I love my country, we have two things we do well. We consume and we have control of the financial markets and system. Well, now we have, regardless of what happens in uh, corrupt uh, Russia and Ukraine and their conflict, we have set in motion one of the last vestiges of power that has allowed the West to stay on top. And it's in China's interest. Uh, India, you're seeing them emerge as not aligned. You're seeing UAE, Israel, Turkey, Mexico. I mean, this is a geopolitical disaster that regardless of what happens in Ukraine, it's going to ebb Western influence and specifically American influence over the coming decade. And it just is what it is. Uh, We're not going back to a unipolar world, in my opinion, regardless of what happens in Ukraine. I would I would very much agree. I mean, you said it uh, to perfection. Thank you. That's exactly how I how I see it. Uh, go ahead, Razor, and then uh, Bader. Go ahead, Razor. Uh, thanks, Harry. I just wanted to comment on the United States Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, so I think, like, even historically, if we look in the past 50 years, this is, like, the biggest, by far the biggest decay rate uh, when it comes to the drainage. Uh, I haven't seen a slope um, on that uh, petroleum reserve that sharp. Um, in like 50 years, right? And it almost like has vibes of the 80s, like, but somehow, somewhat in reverse. Uh, so I'm talking about that period between Iran and Iraq war, where it began the Iranian revolution. So a lot of geopolitical events. But this seems like we have a lot of geopolitical events, but it's almost like the oil is, uh, the reserves are being drained versus being built up. So I just wanted to mention that. Also, it seems like at the peak we were we were at uh, 700 million so uh we've been draining basically for the past uh, six years on that constant decay rate but now it's kind of declining sharply to i think 568 in addition to what they're gonna be draining um in the upcoming couple of weeks but i wanted to quantify this and maybe ask even uh, dr anas here that's on the call uh, at 700 million bar- barrels build up in the storage with about 35 days now with the current uh, status, we're at like 25 days. So we're a couple of weather events away from like getting to that 18 days reserve, 17 days. Uh, so two, three weeks. Um, I don't know. It just feels kind of like a little bit uh, irresponsible. But I just wanted to get some insights from the smart people in the room. Thank you so much. Okay. And Naz, I think that was for you. Okay. Hello, good morning. Uh, no, but I think it was for Dr. Anas, but... Uh, what, uh, uh, I mean, you promised better to speak after him. Uh, this is Anas, by the way. Uh, so let's better speak as you planned, and then I'll talk. Okay, uh, go ahead, Bader. Good morning from Riyadh. I'm glad Dr. Anas is here. I need to ask him a question. You know, there is a piece of information circulating that prices are ignoring the fundamentals. Why that decision of releasing the SPR, releasing, why this decision? Is it politically 
just for the election or it has a long-term effect on gasoline price. And another question, maybe it, it is more politics. Is the Biden administration limited with a, with a political solution for any issue regarding oil or regarding uh, the issue in Ukraine? Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, this is uh, Anas. Uh, first of all, uh, this is a leak. And this leak happens only a few hours before OPEC meeting because the administration already knew that there will be uh, nothing coming out of this meeting in terms of increase in production. They were hoping, based on the July agreement, that the base months will change and that will add a lot of oil. And um, there is kind of a complete misunderstanding even within OPEC members themselves on what the July agreement means, whether it really means 1.7 million barrels uh, of oil increasing in the ce- increase in the ceiling, or it's just open the taps and that will add like more than 3 million barrels a day, or uh, as the Saudis sees, sees it, the increase is only 33,000, I think. Um, so I think the administration realized that there will be no increase and therefore they leak this information as a form of uh, a, a threat. Let me explain a few points and one of them uh, that Razor uh, raised. Uh, any release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is an increase in supply. We should not look at it as a decrease in inventories. And if you look at it, historically, every time we have a release from the SPR, it was intended to lower oil prices. And in many cases, it did lower oil prices. Why people are changing the story and making it bullish? Uh, The reason why, because once we start filling up the SPR, because, you know, these are loans. Once we start filling the SPR, if this is really, if if releasing oil from the SPR is uh, bullish, then locking oil in the SPR is bearish? I mean, it just does not make sense. So we should really isolate the SPR here. A decrease in the SPR is increase in supply. The decrease in the last six years makes perfect sense. Why? Because when the SPR was built in the 70s until 2010, U.S. oil production was decreasing. Then we have the share revolution. And U.S. oil production increased until the U.S. became the largest oil producer in the world and became among one of the largest exporters of crude in the world and became the largest exporter of LNG, as you know. So why do I need all that SPR in this case? Why I need all that SPR and I have all this oil in the United States? Before, I need it because it was a replacement for imports. Imports being cut. Just imagine this. The difference between the forecast and the actual imports is 10 million barrels a day. Lower. So why do I need the SPR in this case? Regardless, even when you look at the SPR, because of the quality of the crude available, If I really want to rebuild the SPR, it has to be some sort of a different quality crude. And luckily, we have Canada to compensate for the heavier uh, crude in this case. But still, 
that the quality of crude in the uh, HPR reflected what uh, needed in terms of imports historically, but not all of that needed right now. So probably I need the heavier slates to, to store because that's what I import from overseas. So uh, it is a leak just before OPEC meeting, uh, increasing um, or releasing oil from the HPR is a supply matter, so it increases supply. Do I have a problem with uh, lower storage? Yes, I do. But the problem is, where is the threshold? I still have over 400 million barrels in the commercial SPR. So really, where is the threshold? There are some mathematical models where I can find this, this threshold and talk about it, but let's remember this. People predicted oil prices to go to 125 and 150 without the Ukraine crisis. Now I have the Ukraine crisis. I have possible loss, loss of uh, Russian crude and prices are almost $100. The, for those who are interested in the SPR and all the issues uh, related to the SPR, there is a big debate between Democrats and Republicans about the SPR. Uh, Republicans wanted to uh, literally uh, uh, release all the oil from the SPR and, and the program. In fact, the Republicans even wanted to eliminate the whole Department of Energy, uh, which include the EIA in this case. But looking at uh, the, the role of the SPR, the SPR, in reality, if you look at it from pure academic point of view, it has a role to play, but it has not been played right because of various issues related to regulations and politics. And one of the main results of my research that I posted on Twitter today was that if you want the SPR to be effective in reducing the crisis level or reducing prices, you need to announce it in a way where you don't say we are going to release 30 million and then wait for the companies to see whether they are going to buy it or not. You are going to release oil, continue releasing oil until the crisis is over. That's the way it becomes effective. Otherwise, if you say we are going to release 30 million and we have a panic in the market, well, companies are going to buy that oil and store it. The irony is we are at a stage right now where that SPR release is being exported and therefore the American taxpayer is subsidizing the rest of the world when this oil is exported to the rest of the world. And one of the ironies is the, the Greens will go crazy right now when they realize that the, uh, by providing oil as a loan to the oil companies, and by releasing oil that's being exported to the rest of the world, that the Biden administration is literally using the taxpayer money to subsidize fossil fuel. And uh, uh, without mentioning names, I, I really want to see their faces right now when they hear something like this. Soheb? Wow. Subsidizing. <laughs> yeah, for, for, for the world, not, not, for, not for U.S. citizens, which makes it even better. Yeah. Yeah. Prodigal, what are your thoughts so far? I agree with that. I mean, it's the same thing with the natural gas. It's not coming to lower prices here. It's being shipped uh, to, to, to Europe to deal with the Ukraine situation. It's just 
it's it's a complete clusterfuck and i think politically i think it's not just opec i think he's hoping a price decrease because if it's an overwhelming uh, red wave uh, in midterms uh, the administration is looking at a number of investigations and you've seen that and i'm not going to bring it political because i know it's energy but you've seen that with the reemergence of the hunter biden laptop story and now the new york times and washington post they've all confirmed it. so uh you know i'm not saying uh, corporate legacy media now is doing this in in preparation for investigations that may be coming but it's clear that inflation and gas prices and heating costs are on all u.s taxpayers minds and uh the platitudes coming out of the administration and even corporate media go buy an ev etc is not uh, allaying these concerns and nobody is buying that it was trans, uh, transitory, which was supposed to end a year ago. <clears throat> and nobody's buying that this wasn't occurring before Ukraine. So they're 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 doing a hail mary, uh, and uh, they're hoping that you know OPEC and you know this release will will lower costs and and maybe uh, remove an issue uh, come November. So here's uh, so Dr. Ness was saying that uh, he, he wants to look at the faces of these individuals that uh, will be surprised to know as to what's going on. So with regards to how bad, you know, the energy markets are understood by the larger public, like, how are these people going to even know? Like, uh, how are they even going to know that this is what's taking place and that, uh, you know, the American taxpayer is going to be subsidizing global markets um, through through this process, Dr. Ness? Uh, well, uh, when it is a religion, they won't know. So I... yeah, yes. And um, in terms of them trying to, you know, intentional leaks to be able to uh, dissuade or try to get the. Yeah. So how, how does the SPR release? You know, how do you think um, that is attempted to affect um, the OPEC members? So, like, what, what is the intended outcome by by doing this type of leak? Well, uh, uh, I, I think the issue is because this meeting is about May output and May output, as I mentioned, should change from previous months because of the July agreement that changes the base month. And there is dispute about what it means because some members think it means a large increase in production as the UAE was asking for and the total ceiling. I, I emphasize the board ceiling here because production is one thing and ceiling is another. And the ceiling should, based on those numbers, basically increase by 1.7. But the interpretation by uh, various members is different for the Saudis. The way they look at it is the increase is really very minor increase. And probably the Saudi interpretation will be adopted anyway. And the administration already know this. Uh, so they 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 played this this game. The issue is they don't realize how entrenched the OPEC plus members are uh, in various ways. Uh, if you look at the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Kuwaitis, uh, the Omanis, and the Bahrainis, uh, they really they are not going to respond to the administration no matter what. Uh, and for the rest of OPEC members. Uh, and OPEC plus members, they are just enjoying every extra dollar they can get. And the Biden administration does not understand this point that I'm going to mention right now, that the massive increase in fuel prices and food prices means for the rest of OPEC members beside the countries that I mentioned, 
it means that they are going to waste all the increase between 85 and the prices today, between $85 and the prices today. They are going to waste all of that on, on subsidies on food alone. So for the Biden administration to tell them, look, you have to lower prices, we have to increase production and lower prices, they look at it and say, we are in crisis already. So if the Biden administration is serious about these things, they should tackle the issues that include food prices so they can help the poorer countries at least defect, if, if, if that's the right term. But that's not the case. And this idea that fuel prices are high, uh, uh, food prices are high, demonstrations in the streets in several countries, even in rich countries, uh, uh, and those governments cannot really, they don't have enough uh, liquidity beside what they are getting right now from oil prices to subsidize. We've already seen the Gulf countries basically depositing money in the uh, several billion dollars uh, in the uh, Egyptian central bank just to support the Egyptian currency because of this. Because if you look at it the other way, the currency is going to collapse Inflation is going to go through the roof and then people in the streets again. These are serious matters and the Biden administration is ignoring that. So, hey. This is something that um, I think is remarkable. So, you know, this was about a week, two weeks ago, the Egyptians woke up and, you know, the, the currency lost 17% of its value. Right now, when they're trying to prop up the current, like what, what's in their benefit? Um, like why is it is it one of those things where it's like oh if we get you know an uprising in the largest countries in the Middle East we might see a contagion and it's one of those things where they're trying to help prop them up um, or is there maybe another selfish benefit in, in supporting Egypt? No, I think what you mentioned first is is correct. I mean, who who wants all this this headache coming from those uh, countries and all those problems? Uh, and uh, uh, let's remember. In fact, one of the ironies when the um, Arab Spring happened, and uh, probably the audience should hear this, and some of them probably know about it, China and Russia were paying professors, Western professors, any Western professor who can say that the Arab Spring was organized by the CIA, was invited to take a tour and give speeches at universities in those both countries, so they can tell their own people it's really not about freedom and it's not about food and it's not about those issues. It is really about st stupid people that the CIA played in this case. And it's funny to see this kind of how it's playing right now, uh, uh, especially with, uh, with Russia and Ukraine. So these are some serious issues but how uh, the media in some countries is going to play it, that's, that's going to be different. But from the Biden administration point of view, it is clear that they are ignoring it. But why, why do you think so? Why do you think China and Russia were paying those professors to, um, to, to push that narrative that uh, the CIA is the one that because is responsible for the Because they read the Internet, they see people seeking freedom. And they are asking for their rights and for this and for this and for this. And they read, they see. And uh, the number of people who learned English in the last 15 years is in millions. Uh, so they, they were afraid that those ideas uh, will propagate 
within the these countries. So what they did is they brought in those pro, any professor who any white professor who can say this is a CIA thing. They were invited and they were paid handsomely. I, I mean, I'll just interject. Uh, I mean, ignoring. Uh you know, the, uh, I guess, propaganda push that Anessa is saying. The, the issue why they would want to invest is the Arab Spring started in Egypt, right? That's Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. And it spread out through, throughout the entire... Because my Arab understanding was it was in, in Tunisia, right? Well, that, Tunisia, that... But, but Egypt is such an influential Arab state, right? If you even look at its role in, in the conflicts with Israel, etc. When it spread, the U.S. made a horrible policy of not supporting many of the dictators and monarchs it propped up, right? It let it spread throughout the region and said it's going to be a good thing. Instead, it led to uh, Libya, Syria. It was a complete chaos, at least in the perspective of the Gulf states and what was occurring in the Middle East, the regimes that were there. So the trust isn't there to begin with. So if Saudi Arabia and other elements are doing this to try to mitigate uh, the reemergence of the Muslim Brotherhood or, or these type of mass uprisings, I mean, Egypt is a very large and influential Arab nation, and for it to fall into riots and chaos again, uh, or which I don't think CC would allow. Right? I think you'll see people shot dead on the street. Uh, it's just them trying to pay up front something that could be much worse if riots start over food and energy prices and, and due to hyperinflation in the country. So, uh, Dr. Anas, if, if the Middle East, you know, the Middle Eastern producers, they don't, they're going to suffer ramifications of higher energy costs. Um, isn't it in their interest to do everything they possibly can do for the sake of stability to help cooperate with the U.S. in, 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 in lowering energy prices? Okay. Unfortunately, they cannot. Uh, we have many cases right now, and this is uh, the situation right now, that we already seen the IEA and the Biden administration, basically, uh, when they talked about the release of uh, oil from the SPR, it did not work. The previous release of the SPR did not work. When you have a panic in the market uh, or people expecting higher prices, and we've seen this a few times in the last 50 years, what happens? You end up with a situation where nothing will work. So releasing oil from the SPR, the oil will be hoarded. You release oil from OPEC, oil will be hoarded. Uh, you, you lift sanctions on Iran or uh, Venezuela, is not going to help. So we need to calm the market first to make policies effective. Those policies are not effective when, the, when there is a panic in the market. Uh, we have situations in the past where some oil tankers being sold more than 15 times while they are on water. And they kept like, they stayed on water because every time they change direction, they got sold and they've been ordered to change direction. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two, oil is a political commodity, whether we like it or not. Yes, some OPEC members try to isolate politics as much as they can out of it. But by nature, oil is a political commodity. From day one, since it was established, when politicians put their eyes on tax, taxing it, uh, uh, and state taxes basically were a political issue. Uh, so when decisions are made, they have to weigh that basket of economics and politics. They don't want to annoy by. Uh, they don't want to annoy Putin. The links between Putin or what we call OPEC Plus is not only about oil production and managing the oil market. 
or managing volatility in the oil market. It's way deeper than that. Uh, as some of you heard me before, uh, Russia is a member of the UN Security Council. Russia is OPEC's voice in the UN Security Council. So they have a veto right in the UN Security Council through Russia. Is that important? Well, remember, there was a vote in the UN Security Council on climate change. If that vote passed, it would have been a disaster for the Gulf countries. But Russia, of course, China opposed it too, but Russia basically opposed it. So Russia is very important for those countries. Russia is the only country in the world who can stop uh, the madness of climate change policies in Europe. We are not against policies to fight climate change. We are against the extremists. We are ex against extreme policies. They already paid the heavy price even before the Ukraine crisis because we had an energy crisis in Europe before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, we have the issue of imposing carbon taxes on imports of products. I'm not talking about anything related to energy. Uh, I mean, if you import a laptop, uh, then they will calculate the amount of carbon in it and then they will tax it accordingly. Well, the only country can stop them basically uh, is Russia. So Russia is very important for the GCC countries, uh, at least on, on that front, but there are other issues uh, too. Uh, Russia is important balancing point when it comes to China and India. We've already seen the behavior of the government of India with the GCC countries, which was a, a kind of really strange, bad behavior, especially what they've done with Qatar, the attacks on Saudi Arabia, etc. Uh, uh, it just uh, did not make sense what they were uh, doing. So Russia basically can help them with that. So Russia is a very important partner for them. Why sacrifice that? They worked for five years to build this coalition, but they've been working on it for 30 years. So why you throw away an investment of 30 years just because of one event? So, hey. So you're saying why throw it away for the, you know, one event and this event that you're referring to is what event exactly? Ukraine is talking about, I think. Okay. So, but in this case is like we, we established, um, okay. We established the part where everyone suffers, including the Middle Eastern countries from high uh, energy costs. We, we also understand that, you know, there's countries that within OPEC that may need help uh, in order to be able to bring production online. And is it going to be a situation where they're going to try to help maybe some of the members and, and reshuffle around? We know some members can't produce, but they, they, they're not producing because of the quota. And then there's certain members that are missing the quota. You know, isn't it in their incentive to be able to shuffle that around? So, you know, the... Yeah, go ahead. Two points here. Uh, we already seen yesterday what happened with Egypt. Uh, I, I think the amount was, I forgot, what, like $21 billion, I think the total was. Uh, so we already it's already happening. We already seen OPEC historically for the last 45 years or so, They the amount of donations they made to third world countries 
was massive. They already have the OPEC fund. Uh, the OPEC fund basically invests in projects, mostly energy projects and others in various countries around the world, mostly poorer countries. Uh, so they are helping on that front. On the other front, in terms of increasing production, uh, look what happened in Algeria uh, yesterday. They have a major oil discovery and they are expediting almost everything about it. Uh, it will bring oil and bring natural gas online. We uh, already have seen uh, uh, some countries basically been working on maintenance uh, and investing in maintenance in recent months and uh, their production should ramp up uh, soon. We already have seen uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait trying to work out the Dura field uh, so they can bring it uh, online. And you, we've seen the reaction from Iran. So we are seeing some reactions to these things. It just the problem is it takes time. Okay. And in, in this case, uh, you know what? Uh, let me get to Abe in here and then I'll proceed with so, uh, just sure. so many questions. Abe, go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, great uh, hearing from you, doctor. So I, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, it's really a, a two-pronged question. Number one, um, if, in fact, and I do agree that there is really little incentive uh, for OPEC Plus to be compromised because of this event um, in the Ukraine. Um, but the bigger question that I have is, uh, is there any incentive or is there um, a catalyst for OPEC Plus, primarily the um, uh, Arab-led uh, uh, powerhouses that produce oil, uh, in order to, let's just say, um, uh, to provide the Americans a favor, and I say this very loosely and maybe naively, um, but to do them a favor in the short run in order to achieve, um, uh, which you've already answered the question, uh, there's zero incentive because they're running food inflation on the other side. But I'm wondering in terms of, um, is there... Um, is there tremendous political pressure at this point in time by the Americans for them to uh, compromise, first of all, Russia? And number two, um, uh, what do you see in the next uh, foreseeable future in terms of the next six months? Do you believe that there will be um, uh, that supply will be able to compensate uh, in order to drive perhaps um, uh, more normalized uh, pricing in, in the oil and gas sector, primarily oil crude, um, uh, around uh, $85, $90 sort of uh, median price. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I think my answer is going to be a little bit long because your, your questions are extremely important. Um, uh, why ha they have to do them a favor if you... I'm not going to go through this because I don't want to delve into the politics of MBS and Biden. But we all know what happened and what Biden said. Uh, we, we know that Biden basically refused to, to meet MBS. So the, why they have to do him a favor? Why they have to do, him a, to, them a, to do them a favor when they know that the one who is cornered is really Biden? Uh, he cornered himself. We have the elections coming. He really wanted this uh, he wanted the help they don't need him it was biden basically who uh, removed the houthis from the terrorism list it was biden who withdrew the uh, missiles uh, uh, from saudi arabia uh, so why they have to give him a favor so uh, i think that's that's their view 
uh, on the other side, uh, we have to uh, consider uh, other things uh, when looking at those uh, decisions. Uh, there is a conviction among some people in the leadership in the Middle East that this is the last bull market in the oil market. And if it is, and oil prices go to 700, let it be. Because that's my only chance and the last chance. And this is a very scary thought when you look at it that way. Uh, I called it in one of the um, threads that I wrote, I called it the hit and run uh, policy. Literally, it's hit and run. So there is this, this conviction among some of them that this is the last bull market and therefore uh, uh, the, the EVs and the green policies, etc., cetera, uh, is going to eat up oil demand. So they are buying into the uh, green uh, philosophy uh, and therefore, they really don't care about their efforts to um, increase production and lower prices. I think what we are seeing right now, especially in the last two weeks in particular, might change some minds. And we might see some really shift uh, in the minds of those people regarding uh, the future. And I hope that's the case because we still need oil for uh, decades uh, to come. The last point is, uh, I think the Gulf states, they are going to be awash with money. I don't think uh, the biggest countries are going to spend that much simply because inflation is already high. And if government spending increases substantially to reflect the increase in oil prices or revenues, that's going to cause major inflation and the population is not going to be happy. Uh, so they will have surplus and what they are going to do with that surplus and which currency they are going to keep it in. Uh, I think those are legitimate questions, but I think they are going to look at the political situation in some Arab states. Uh, and if that situation deteriorate, probably they will try to help them financially to stabilize the regimes. So, hey. And the other thing is, so when we look at that and say, okay, we compare uh, the, the energy secretary of the U.S., who is uh, Jennifer Granholm, um, that doesn't maybe even understand how much you know energy, how many barrels a day they produce, versus Abdelaziz bin Salman, who's probably the, the, the smartest energy minister, minister in, in the history of uh, energy ministers. And you compare the two in contrast. You know, is when when we say okay, well, we're getting some really, really. Do you think this is just by design? Um, you know, the, the the Saudis are just focused on and getting the best leadership they could possibly can get, and then the Americans um, are just you know their their priorities are just elsewhere, and as just sleeping on the wheel and not really focusing on getting their their strongest candidate um, up front and center. Um, that that's largely attributable to these missteps that, that we've been seeing? Um, I think uh, one of the biggest mistakes that the Democrats and the uh, Green prophets made in 2020 
that when they saw oil prices dropping and the oil industry uh, suffering uh, and the oil producers suffering, they thought that was their momentum. And if you recall, it was headline news all over, even in, in events and on Zoom, and everyone was talking about this is our opportunity. And uh, they asked uh, governments to use their uh, whatever uh, programs, financial programs they are using to mitigate the effect of COVID-19 and uh, prop up the economy. Uh, let's make it an, a green recovery, which means that they want to take all the money that the government is using. They want it to go through green programs and ignore, ignore everything else. And with this, we've seen so many outrageous statements at that time. And now, uh, only uh, less than two years later, we see what we are seeing right now. What happened is uh, uh, there is this uh, old old saying that a father was telling his son, his son was uh, got into a fight with someone else and his son basically beat the hell out of him. And the father came in and said, look, next time, don't beat him like this. Just leave some place for mercy just in case this guy becomes someone later in the future, he can really have some mercy on you. And the Green basically did exactly that. And the Democrats did exactly that. They did not leave a place for mercy. They went all the way. I mean, look at it. Look at the uh, members of the Canadian oil mafia. And look at the attacks we've got on Twitter and everyone else. They really did not leave place for, for, for mercy. And I think that was a big mistake. And and, and, and Dr. Anas, this is one big thing. This is one big issue. It's, you know, when we're talking about, uh, so, so we're saying, okay, when uh, inflation adjusted, these numbers aren't even really that high, inflation adjusted. So if, if these numbers are causing, you know, riots in different parts of the world and causing problems, you know, Europe, uh, sorry, Egypt was, was, was really teetering and, and it needed to be saved. Um, so what, like, what's going to happen at a hundred, a two hundred dollar oil, or a hundred fifty dollar oil, or a hundred seventy dollar oil? You ever uh, see? Uh, you're young, Saeed. Uh, it might be before your time. It's a Mel Gibson movie. Uh, it's called uh, Mad Max. Have you ever seen it? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but what I, I guess the question is, if this is not even really that bad in terms of high energy prices, like we, like there's not, you know, relative to to the past. So we're saying, okay, you know, we can potentially sustain higher energy prices. Uh, I did, but, but if this is, is causing this much damage I, where we currently are at, um, and um, we, we talk about, okay, well, these, the, the, these Middle Eastern countries, the producers are thinking a hit-and-run policy where it's like, you know what, just, you know, whatever happens, happens. We'll try to get as, as much money as we can. But the concern ends up being the instability that ends up taking place in that region that is going to prevent them from being able to enjoy, you know, the profits of their labor when, you know, everything's popping off. Yes, you are right. But here is what analysts are missing. And I think um, analysts and advisors are missing a very, very important point, not only in the oil producing countries, but even in the oil consuming countries. And India is on the top of that, uh, that. It's not the comparison of real oil prices or real gasoline prices over time. And yet, you know, uh, oil prices are not that high when you look at them in real terms, etc. That's not the case you measure it. 
we have a special case now when prices of everything are going up and therefore everything is getting squeezed. And this comes on top of lifting all the subsidies, whether in all producing countries or all in consuming countries, they lifted all the subsidies and then they increased taxes. So we are not going to look at it at this point of time only. We should look at this process in the last 15 years where subsidies are lifted, uh, then uh, uh, taxes are imposed, and then income taxes are uh, uh, imposed, and then VAT is imposed above that. And then you have all those increases almost in everything. When you look at it that way, everything, this increase, even if it was smaller, is still very dangerous increase. So we have this process over 15 years that's been building up that's making the current situation very dangerous. In many countries, uh, uh, especially in the Arab countries, remember, oh, just 15 years ago, everything was subsidized. Right now, everything is taxed. So, Abe? Yeah, I'll pass it off to Abe. Uh, Go ahead, Abe. Yeah, this is kind of my, my wheelhouse. Um, you know, the, the, the doctor's dead on the money. You have to look at the last 15 years, especially post-financial um, crisis in the United States. Um, we, the system never really worked itself out of any excess. In fact, um, we, we essentially played the extend and pretend game after 2008. And um, the net result uh, is 15, 16 years later, we find ourselves in a place where you have, uh, and this is well known, but I can get into the fiscal side, you have um, inflation running so damn hot. And my belief is that you haven't seen anything yet because now you've got exogenous factors that have now further exasperated an already super fragile uh, situation on the ground where you have coordinated central banks throughout the world literally literally shitting themselves because they're painted themselves into a corner um, uh, through literally mass liquidity uh, and mass stimulus over the last couple of years, specifically in COVID, primarily Western countries and specifically the United States, where, you know, they unleash the mother of all liquidity. And what has happened is that um, and that's why you see in the markets, there's so much discussion. You'll see a new narrative that's going to float any, any moment now where you've got the two and the 10 year, you know, you've got inversion. They all start talking about inversion. Now the narrative is, well, who gives a shit? Um, you know, the U.S. will be able to handle, um, you know, much higher rates, which we all know is absolute bullshit because the problem isn't just necessarily the rates. The problem is that inflation is running rampant right across all asset classes. You have an everything bubble. You have an everything, um, uh, you know, overvalued. Um, it's not just one sector. It's every bloody sector. On top of it all, you now have fiscal constraints because here's the problem now. Um, if you run into a situation where you have um, uh, you know, a deflation, which is essentially you're driving uh, very high inflation, uh, very poor economic outlook. 
you're now screwed because if you even attempt to drive more stimulus into the economy, you're just going to perpetuate even more runaway inflation. And that's the problem, is that we have lost both uh, monetary uh, uh, from the central bank perspective, but also from a fiscal perspective, they have now been neutered because of what's happened today. And so now they've found themselves in a checkmate situation. And, you know, if you want to even connect the dots with Ukraine and Russia, there is zero incentive. And I say zero incentive for uh, the Russians to walk back any of it, because essentially they know they're screwed, but their perspective is they're going to screw everyone else in the process. And this is what's happening from a geopolitical perspective. And that's why you're seeing, uh, you know, regimes now like Russia uh, in bed with the Chinese. Not that they love the Chinese. It's nothing to do about that. They just happen to be convenient partners in 2022 where we sit today, including India and including many others. It's a convenience that exists. You know, I, something I tweeted earlier today and something I've over 30 years, it's, it's dawned on me. There are no friends there are no enemies. There's just national interests. And that's the prevailing uh, perspective that we are going to see. But, you know, to, to kind of sum up what the, what the doctor has mentioned, he's, he's right. The reality is there is no fiscal or even monetary movement and flexibility given the mess that's created. And so you're not even considering the amount of leverage that's in the system. You're not even we're not even discussing that. So imagine now the situation where we find ourselves, where essentially you've got 40-year high. It's not transitory. 70% of the inflation is sticky. 30% of it, it will iron itself out through uh, the easing of supply chains at some point in time. But in the meantime, you're running straight into what I would deem a, a slowdown. And here's the problem. There are no political good um, uh, policy directives at this time, uh, put it this way, nobody wants to, uh, to address the problem head on, because if you address the problem head on, it means you're going to have, uh, you know, a, a massive economic downturn. And there isn't anyone in the world that wants to even uh, partake or participate in, in really um, uh, readjusting the entire global uh, uh, scene as, as it sits today. Nobody. This is the problem. And that's why they're all, I've said this, central banks are trapped and now you have Ukraine and now you've got the perfect storm with oil and gas. And guess what? And something else the doctor mentioned, which I've also said the same thing because people have asked me, do you think there's incentive for um, uh, more CapEx spending in the oil and gas sector? And the answer is you have to be an absolute idiot to go and spend tens of billions of dollars when you know that you have a green narrative that eventually is going to kill you. So their perspective is exactly, it's the hit and run, or I can't remember the analogy the doctor used, but he's absolutely correct. So essentially it's uh, as long as we can achieve and drive mass profitability in this current storm, they're going to take it and they're not going to do anyone any bloody favors in the process. So guess what? It's checkmate. It's uh, the pain is very real. And the only mitigating factor I can see is that eventually you will uh, you will find yourself in a global recession, if not a global depression. Uh, if these prices uh, continue to further exasperate the entire value chain 
of all other commodities and asset classes, which are already on fire. So guess what? At the end of the day, the way I see everything moving, there is no soft landing. There's going to be a hard landing. The question is, how bloody hard is it going to be? And uh, who are the who are going to be the winners and losers in all of this? Thank you. Dr. Anas, uh, who do you think are going to be the winners and losers? The biggest winners and the biggest losers? Well, before we get into this one, uh, many of you heard me saying this before, and I'd like to repeat it one more time, that if you look at the history of the oil industry, most of the political crises uh, that took place in the oil-producing countries happened during periods of high prices. We don't have any evidence to show that political chaos happened during low oil prices. Uh, so I would like to add uh, this factor to what Abe uh, just mentioned, that in addition to his excellent uh, talk, uh, all the points he mentioned add to it this fact that uh, history tells us we have political chaos in oil-producing countries only when oil, when oil prices are high. Uh, well, has, speak, that, has that taken into account when food prices have reached these historical levels and fertilizer prices? Because I'm just curious, if you're just looking at that one data point, if you're looking at those time periods, were food costs and scarcity at such a point as they're going to be over the next 12 months? Yes, but this is independent of that. And the reason why, and this is my own uh, explanation, uh, and I uh, developed a, a model, a mathematical model, tried to explain it, and i never been able to publish it because uh, reviewers couldn't, <laughs> couldn't understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, the, the, the idea is uh, the uh, oil becomes extremely valuable and therefore the amount of oil revenues and therefore the prize for whoever is going to control a country is massive. So if you look at uh, around the world, uh, the behavior of people and yeah, even mafia and uh, uh, others, gangs, etc., they go after the big prize. And, and politicians do exactly the same and military leaders do the same. So you end up with military coups and other things, etc., because the benefits from it and the financial benefits are amazing. Uh, so regardless of uh, other things, this is just pure... Uh, wealth issue, if you, if you want to call it that way. And the model I developed basically is this, that uh, you end up with dictatorship in those countries, no matter what. And yes, we have elections in Russia, but this applies to Russia in this case too. So what happened is, in economics, when you talk about monopoly models, monopolists uh, earn this monopoly profit, which is the extra profit. And instead of taking that profit and spending all of it on the, in, on the industry or on whatever you want to use, they take most of it to maintain their monopoly. Now apply that to politics. They take most of it to maintain their power. So the regime will maintain its power instead of spending it on expanding. And that's back to what Abe mentioned. And instead of expanding capacity, and instead of expanding the industry, that money is going to go to empower the regime. In this case, empower the dictators so they can stay in power, just exactly like monopolists. And in this case, what we are seeing in Russia or other places is just taking that money. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine is extremely costly. 
but that's diversion of resources to maintain that monopoly power. And this uh, leads, so regardless of food prices and everything else, this is the phenomenon that we've seen uh, with not only oil, basically, but it applies to natural resources in general. Uh, but if you want to talk about political instability and add to it what you just mentioned about food prices and mineral prices and metal prices, uh, uh, etc. I mean, for God's sake, if you look at uh, 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 flight uh, prices right now, I wanted to go to Toronto the other day, and I never seen prices like this. Uh, I wanted to go to, I, I thought I can go to Detroit and drive up uh, and take a rental car, and I found out that the price of the rental car is more than the, t the airline ticket. And people are feeling that. So, hey. So, the Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, Go ahead. Hey, uh, hey, Soheb, this is Raj. Um, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Um, and I say it was nice uh, hearing your wonderful insights. Uh, I've been here. I've been following the spaces for quite a long time. Uh, since you already mentioned, like uh, this might be the last bull case for oil. I have a couple of questions. In the sense, uh, uh, if you take India and China. Um, the population combined together is like 30% of world population. And if you look at the stats of how they are getting their uh, energy, 60%, 60% of the energy supplied to India and China is through thermal coal. Okay. So, and uh, I follow quite a lot and the renewables, uh, uh, India is having quite a problem to, to get the right renewables uh, on track so that's where the real problem is so my question here is that's one part the other part is uh, i i'm hearing like a lot of evs coming into picture which kind of uh, negates the oil and everything but when evs show up obviously they need something uh, the end source will be the same right they need energy they need electricity so how are you going to supply the delta of electricity which the evs need uh, how how the renewables are going to eliminate this thermal 60% of thermal use for the 30% of the old population. And then again, if you take uh, African uh, GDP growth into picture, they, they are obviously, they, they are entering into the uh, most energy needed uh, space. So how come this be the last energy bull cycle if we have all these big parameters and is the Western, is the Western trying to mask everything and run their own propaganda, ignoring the other side of the uh, big bigger picture in the world. So uh, those are my questions. If you can answer, that would be really great. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, Raj, uh, um, I mentioned I mentioned that as the view of some leaders in the Middle East. This is definitely not my view. So just to be clear on that point, the second point I would like to clarify is the following: for a country like India or a country like China. Very, very little oil is used to generate electricity. Uh, India and China is among the countries that has some of the lowest oil use in power generation. So even if they double renewable energy, triple it, it's not going to affect oil demand. But when we go to electric vehicles, uh, even if you look at the narrative of the electric vehicles, we have some serious uh, problems here. Uh, and we had a space, uh, probably already joined us on that, when we talked about the future of oil, and we talked about the issue uh, of electric vehicles in details. Uh, that 
the oil producing countries are already reacting to that. And they are reacting in a way where they say, okay, you don't want uh, my oil and you are going to use electric vehicles. I want to make sure that the whole body of the electric vehicle is made from, from my oil and gas. And if you are going to go for wind turbines, I want to make sure that those blades and the base of that wind turbine is made from my oil or gas. The same thing for uh, solar panels. Uh, so oil basically is going to be exported, embedded in something else, which means that oil is going to be used no matter what in the future, even if you go for a green future. Uh, the other point is, uh, and usually we don't go into these details because those details are useless when you talk to people who are uh, really, uh, in a sense, on the green side and they cannot even understand what we are talking about. But one of the main issues when we talk about the impact of electric vehicles is we always talk about the gross impact. We don't talk about the net impact. And the net impact basically is really tiny. It's really small uh, uh, any way you look at it. So the body of the car is made from, because the battery of the electric vehicle is extremely heavy. So electric car manufacturers have no choice but to lower the weight of the body. And the only way they can lower the weight of the body if they use some materials made from petrochemicals, and that's from oil and gas. So the body of electric vehicles has no choice but to be made from oil and gas. So that's number one. The problem is, because they are heavy, that means the, the wear and tear on the tires is more than the regular car. And we know where tires are made from, or, or what they are made from. And because of the weight, they are going to the wear and tear, the wear and tear of the roads, the asphalt uh, is going to be higher. And we know asphalt is going, where it's going to come from. So once we start looking at the net impact over a period of 15 to 25 years, we will get different results from the narratives that we are hearing all over the place. Uh, that was really great, Anna. So one last question before I... Uh... Just uh, life has dropped. Uh, let's go over to Mojave and then come back to you, all right? Mojave, sure. go ahead. Hey, hi. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, doctor, for the providing the too much insights on this. My question is specifically related to Russia. In the past, when you have done a podcast on uh, Iran, you told that an, any country wants a dominance in the oil or they want to like throw out the other countries like Germany or other... European countries, they need to have the technology and their engineers need to be very good so they can like get the oil from their own technology. So I want to know like where Russia stands, like they have their own technology or like they are dependent on some other countries where they need to bring their engineers or their technology to get the oil from their wheels and like search for, search for the new places where the oil is available. You are asking about Russia, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So let me let me say this: uh, uh, people mistake uh, people make a mistake when they think that in our modern history oil was discovered in Pennsylvania, in the United States. Oil was discovered in Baku uh, about eleven years earlier than the United States. Baku right now is in Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan at that time was under the control of the Tsar of Russia. 
So the oil industry started there. Many of the terms we use today and many of the weights and many of the things we use in the industry, all those standards were set under Russia rules. And the technology being developed right there. And right now, most of the technology they use is Russian technology. Most of their uh, cost, about 65% of the cost is local cost. So can they survive without uh, the technology of the West? Yes. Are they going to be that efficient? No. But here, let me point out that the sanctions being imposed so far on Russia, especially from the, on the oil sector, is a joke. And some of you heard those in a previous space. Um, if you look at the announcement, well, I mean, people think that the uh, oil companies already decided to stop dealing with Russia and some of them just walked out and they are not going to, 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 to do any business in Russia. That's absolutely incorrect. Uh, uh, you have uh, the Norwegian Equinor, uh, the Italian INI or ENI, and you have the French Total. All of them, people have the impression that they are no longer dealing with Russia. Well, if you look at their statements, their statements is they are only stopping future investment in Russia, which means that current operations and current contracts are not going to be touched. They are staying the same. And then a few days later, we have Halliburton, Schlumberger, and Becker Hughes are saying exactly the same, that they are not walking out of Russia, but they are stopping their future investment. And whatever that future investment is, kind of we don't know, but it's just that the current uh, uh, contracts are not going to be impacted in any way. Uh, if you look at Shell, for example, Shell announced that they are going to stop buying Russian oil. But if you really read the press release, they stopped buying Russian oil from the spot market. And most of their uh, deals are contracts. Yet, they did buy from the spot market anyway, and they had to apologize and donate the proceeds to the Ukrainians because of that. Uh, if you look at PP, for example, you look at those companies that are planning to leave Russia, they are planning to leave Russia in the future. Why? Because the Russians, over time, squeeze them to death. And this was a great opportunity for them to leave so they can get compensation from their own governments. Uh, we already know that some, some companies, the companies that are impacted by the sanctions are getting $400,000 each. But for the oil companies, I think the compensation is going to be way, way higher because they can cover the issue of uh, uh, Ukraine uh, uh, or they can cover their uh, withdrawal from some projects that they should have withdrawn years ago, they can get, cover it now under the Ukraine crisis and get some benefits out of it. So here's, um, I think, maybe the most important question out of out of you know this whole thing. When whenever we start to really you know peel back the layers, we start to realize how bad the situation really is. Um, and you know, there's a release from Black, BlackRock that came out and says, you know, the new millennial generation has got too much entitlement and they need to be accustomed to a lower standard of, of living. They, get, they need to be accustomed to maybe not eating as well as they used to and all of that stuff. And, you know, the, 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 
the Prime Minister of, of Canada came out and was, you know, priming the population um, to, okay, there might be some issues in regards to, so, I mean, we've seen this movie before play out with transitory versus not transitory. Now we're starting to see it with foods and commodities and so forth. So the, the, the ultimate question is, uh, the ultimate question here is, there's so many smart people out there. Um, you know, why, why is this crisis that, that we're discussing this issue it seems to be more of a fringe, you know, it's people on the fringes um, that are climate deniers and whatever you may be are, are voicing these concerns. And this is not something, even though we're like where we're through in Europe, you know, the, the energy crisis has begun. Right. And um, the alarm isn't getting like, how is this being missed is is the question that, that I'm trying to ask. How is it being missed by, you know, some of the smartest, biggest money managers, financiers in the world. There was uh, a conference in the UAE a couple of days ago, and the head of Italian INE said a statement, I think it's just an amazing statement, and sums up the answer. He said, just because, I mean, I'm, I'm just not saying it exactly, I'm just saying the meaning. He said, because I produce oil, I am a criminal. And okay, so this is uh, it's a profound statement, uh, and now we understand that this is what the producers feel. But um, when we look at it from the, the allocators of capital around the world, all right, um, when we have conversations with them, uh, when I've had conversations with them, their thought process is: um, don't never go short on hu human ingenuity. Always go long on human ingenuity. Humans will figure this out. They will figure out this solution. The situation is not as bad as it is. So I guess the, the state that they're in right now is denial, right? And there's, you know, the seven stages of grief and you, you go through them one by one. But right now it's strong denial, denialism. Um, you know, how much longer do you think we could be in a state of denial before things really start falling apart? I know some of our friends are going to like this because we said it, uh, uh, I said it a couple of days ago. Uh, um, when people fall in love with their portfolio or their stocks, uh, love make you do crazy things, right? I know some of our friends are going to like that, but I think uh, they are falling in love with uh, with whatever they believe in, and that's uh, the the problem. It's, they are behaving in a crazy way because of this, and they get to get out of that of of love of their portfolio or fund or whatever they are. Uh, doing the biggest mistake that's been made in recent uh, years is the divestment movement. The divestment movement, basically, it, it's always been kind of a really strange movement. Uh, the first encounter I had with uh, people divesting was years ago when the Christian right in the United States uh, uh, arranged for uh, demonstrations. Uh, and asking people not to buy or to to get rid of the stocks of certain companies because those companies are investing in southern Sudan and they are promoting slavery. And uh, um, because they were trying to force the oil companies out, uh, I got involved in a research basically trying to find out what the behavior of those companies and what they are doing. 
and uh, uh, all of a sudden I got involved in side issues. And in those side issues, uh, whatever I'm going to talk about now in the next few minutes basically is, it expresses exactly how when you talk about Trudeau or others, you talk about them, they are smart. Yes, they are smart, but look at what happened. Uh, the Christian right basically sent uh, a delegation to Southern Sudan uh, trying to free some girls they learned about they are being enslaved. They went in with U.S. dollars. And to their surprise, when they reached those faraway villages, they found out they don't use even money. They use goats and cows and cattle. But they were smart people. But they showed up with dollars and no one accepted their dollars. And then they told them, look, they need to buy cows and cattle and, uh, and, and uh, uh, goats so they can free the girls. So they went to, the, uh, uh, to some like weekly market where several villages, villagers gather from around the area. And they bought a lot of them and they sold it to them at very high price. And all of a sudden, everyone realized the following. Someone will call his cousin and tell him, look, I'm going to bring my two girls to you. And, and someone is going to go tell the Americans, uh, I have two girls kidnapped uh, so they can pay you and we can split the proceeds. And all of a sudden, slavery went through the roof in southern Sudan and the press started covering it. It took them about eight years to realize that they were the reason for slavery in southern Sudan. When they stopped the flow of money, everything stopped. But they were smart people too. But what happened is they came back to the United States and they start pressuring the, the oil companies and the oil companies decided to divest and leave. And what happened? They sold it to the Chinese. And the situation became even worse because they divested. Now we have the green divestment. What happened is because you care about the environment, you are going to divest from all companies, but whom you are going to sell it to? The guy who's going to buy it from you does not care about the environment as much as you do. And therefore, by divesting and leaving the table, you are making climate change worse. The only way you can be heard if you are sitting at the table. If you want to be influential, you sit at the table. If you run away, you are just a chicken. And therefore, the divestment movement is really hurting climate change, is hurting the cause, and hurting the industry in the process. That's very profound, uh, Dr. Anas. Always, always, uh, we get the you know profound truth bombs uh, with you on the stage. We're always... Uh, uh, privileged to have you here. Abe, go ahead with your, you have your hands, yeah, I mean, go ahead. It's just a follow-up. Is you know, essentially, um, and we've talked about this, the narrative shift has, has occurred. We've seen it now. We've seen it over the last really 20 years is starting to take hold, and in particular, the last 10 years, where essentially, you know, you, you have, uh, if you look at funds, all of the pension funds, many of them have essentially left. So they've left uh, you know, uh, the entire sector. Uh, you see it in commodities too, where uh, they have been capitally starved. They've been starved of capital over the last 10 years. And unfortunately, uh, what's happened is that, um, you know, demand is immediate. 
something we've talked about. Sure, I get questions. I get questions where people say, for you my know, jacket. Um, sorry, there's someone else talking there. Um, you have you, demand is immediate. Unfortunately, demand may be immediate, but if you stalled, if you starved a sector for the last 15 years, supply is not immediate. And if you and if you also include the narrative shift, which is really, again, moved capital into different segments. Uh, it's not just a question of pressing the button and saying, OK, here we go. We're going to solve this problem. Um, and the truth is, and this is, you know, you, you ask the question, there's a lot of smart people. I would actually beg to differ. There's a lot of very stupid people, but it has been very politically expedient it's been politically expedient uh, for them to move on this, uh, this new narrative. And the only thing I keep wondering is, if they were so bloody intelligent, didn't anyone tell them that at some point in time, uh, the, the mass divestment and the narrative shift that occurred, and the, really the fact that the whole sector has been vilified because of this as being terrible or being criminal, didn't somebody tell them that at some point you're going to have structural supply deficits and you're going to have growing demand? And the reality is that the Green Revolution has yet to take hold in an efficient uh, manner by which uh, the distribution of energy uh, on a different level or on a new level, if you will, um, would have taken hold, except for the fact that it hasn't. And now we find ourselves in, a, in a, an absolutely crazy place where I am still shocked, to be honest with you, even in Canada, uh, which is very oil rich, that there is absolutely zero discussion, absolutely zero discussion in terms of uh, uh, providing certain uh, elements and incentives in order to drive some uh, uh, supply in order to alleviate at a minimum from a strategic perspective. Okay, nothing. We have carbon tax that's going to be uh, implemented in the next couple of days. So I ask myself, where are all these brain surgeons? Where are they now? And the reality is, I don't think they were very smart. I think they everybody got sucked into a narrative. And I'm for sure, I can tell you, I'm very much for the environment. But I'm also a bloody realist. And I've come to the conclusion that um, there was a very poor handoff between the traditional fossil fuel uh, industries and sectors um, with, the, uh, with the new narrative, unfortunately, we have a big, massive void in the process. And guess what? Demand continues to be immediate. And supply, unfortunately, continues to lag behind uh, the fact that there's immediate demand for this. And here we are. I think one of the most bizarre things um, maybe that I've seen thus far um, is, you know, a, a gentleman who is responsible for a country who's being invaded, uh, saying, uh, preaching for Europe to... Tra so Ukrainian President Zelensky pre pushes for Europe to transition to green energy. So this is... It just... Um, it was very confusing, right? Because the, the reason it was very confusing is... These tanks, they don't run on batteries. They don't run on, um, you know, they don't run on alternative, uh, alternative energy. So it was really bizarre. It was very confusing as to how somebody that is currently being invaded 
is advocating for alternative i mean it, it's very difficult because fossil fuels is needed to be able to run wars um so i mean and us it's really bizarre like how how could this possibly be like how how could it be that a person who is running his own like responsible for running the country's offensive make these types of statements could you like help break break it down because this is really really bizarre probably someone who is more familiar with uh, politics and leadership can explain this uh, this is kind of out of my league you want to take a stab at this ape i mean i th- i think i've you know, pretty much you know g- given you the the framework you know the framework is exactly what it is right you um you know w- w- my biggest issue with all of this and again it's just a point is that um and I'm very skeptical. I'm incredibly skeptical. I keep wondering, what is it that I'm missing here? Because this isn't very complex, to be honest with you. This is quite, uh, uh, this is quite elementary when you think about it. W- what has everyone missed here? And that's what I keep asking myself. What, what's missing? Why do I get it? Why isn't anyone else getting it? And perhaps they got it, but maybe there's something we don't know. In all of this, and that's the question I keep asking myself, uh, because I'll tell you, um, I do worry. I do worry very much that, uh, again, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of pain, max pain, worldwide, as uh, as inflation continues to to rage. And the reality is, I don't know what is going to be done in order to mitigate it, other than a natural progression to demand destruction, which we all know occurs in every single cycle, okay? Except uh, this time, you may add, this time's a little different because clearly you have a supply chain mess. You have uh, COVID, which by the way, isn't over, uh, uh, continues to uh, make its rounds, which will further exasperate even more supply chain issues, which drives even more inflation, which drives even more social unrest and more food insecurity and more energy insecurity and so on. And I'll tell you, when, when I read today that the, I think it was Trudeau who said that um, we're in for some tough times, I was actually almost shocked to hear that. Shocking, to be honest with you. Shocking for many reasons, some of which I'll leave nameless. But it's, it's incredible to be hearing this. And that, that worries me, too, because if this is now becoming the new narrative, uh, because uh, President Biden said the same thing the other day, then it makes me wonder what the hell is coming. Because clearly, nobody tells you this because it's politically expedient. They tell you this because it's a trial balloon. It's something that they want uh, this to be uh, to enter into the market in order to climatize the thinking uh, and, and the opinion to get people prepared. So I ask myself, what is actually coming? Because I've connected the dots, but clearly I'm missing a few. Uh, go ahead. Uh, the, um, what, what do we have, David? You know what, David? Um, you, it's your first time up here. Let's get you involved. Go ahead, David. Okay, uh, Mike and Nabel, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Go ahead. 
Okay. Well, first of all, uh, nice to be able to talk to you finally. I finally got off of my lazy ass and installed Twitter on my phone uh, instead of my computer. So uh, uh, I just wanted to uh, talk about the Ukraine situation of why Zelensky might be doing this is because I am half Ukrainian and I half get it. I think it comes from his point of view that uh, uh, they want people to uh, wean themselves off of Russian oil and gas. Now, I know your other guest speaker said uh, it's, you know, go, go through China and stuff. But from Zelensky's point of view, he wants everything done to hurt Russia, even if it hurts the West. Kind of like, you know, bait from that point of view. So that's kind of what my comment was. No, but I, David, the concern is, David, if he stops, if he stops using oil, the, his war is over. Yeah, no, no, not him. He wants the West to. He needs oil for his tanks, absolutely. I don't think he was referring to himself. But I think he also comes from a point of view that after the war is over, they don't want to be dependent on Russian oil and gas as well. Now, they actually are a bit of a producer, I believe. If I'm mistaken, please correct me. But I think that's part of it. So the expectation is that uh, the rest of the world is just going to stop driving and stop moving? Uh I, I, just, I just think he's mad at Russia and wants to hurt them. And I mean, you know, I mean, I have very emotional uh, 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 feelings about what's going on in Ukraine because I am half Ukrainian, right? My my great grandmother's relatives come from northwest of Kiev. So, got it. Uh, our thoughts and prayers uh, with you there, uh, David. Uh, uh, what is it? To the ONG Canuck, go ahead. Okay. Thank you. So one thing I think when it comes to Zelensky is we need to remember he came into politics and, and, and his only experience in politics before running for election was playing like their president on a comedy TV show. He is essentially a Trudeau in that sense. Now, he I, I think I don't think Trudeau would have responded to an invasion like he has. I'll give Zelensky that. But at the end of the day, this is not some guy who has, you know, 20 years experience in the military or 20 years experience as an economist or, you know, like he's a comedian. And, you know, the, you may not get that. That Got it. Got it. Okay. Sense. That makes sense. And then um, to, to Abe's point there about you not getting it, why are we the only ones getting this? I think to a certain extent. A lot of people have left religion in the last, say, two decades. I mean, that, that shows up in the data. And unfortunately, a lot of people have made their politics their religion. And if your politics is oil and gas is, is, is the literal devil and green energy is salvation, it's going to take a lot of work for you to undo that in your mind. Because... Essentially, the, as I said, like these people, they think oil and gas is the devil. They and and if they now have to take a position where oil and gas is good, that means that that means that that you know they've been wrong for how many years, and that makes them feel stupid. So they just don't want to believe it. So it's it's like um, so yeah, like it's going to take a lot of work for these people to kind of slowly back away from that very extremist position to take one that is more or at least in, in the general view of people here more rational that you know oil and gas is good if not you know got its issues with climate but that's not really 
but yeah, so like it's got it. The ONG Kanak, I think you know, this is what's remarkable. And and you know, when Dr. Anas was talking about the prize, and he's talking about how when 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 prices rise, it increases the value of of you know the assets of the oil producing countries, and therefore expenses need to you know ramp up in security because there's you know everyone's trying to get a piece of something, right? And when we look at you know Canada, the third largest reserves in the world, located on the border with the U.S. and they always you know so was they always say it, the the biggest threat to Canada is America. It's not really the the the, the not really the Russians. So. Let's, if, we, if we talk it into a dynamic where there's a severe shortfall of oil, does anyone see any situation where Canada is looking at maybe, you know, the Americans coming in and taking over or, or anything like that? I'm, I'm just talking about the situation, Mad Max situation or something like that, where it becomes patriotic to pull barrels out of the ground and everyone is racing because when when what it's going to take to, Rechange the narrative is is Abe mentioned many times the pain trade it takes time but once you're undergoing the pain you know to bring these projects online it'll take you two to three years so whatever you do add that many years onto that so by the time these people decide that they got it wrong and they they start scrambling we're going to be suffering for that duration um, so just to you know get everyone's thoughts in the room in regards to how that would look like a positioning Canada. Um, relative as, as as the person maybe with the biggest prize, um, being a stable country with the third largest reserves in the world in a very high energy environment. I mean, like my point of view on that is it'd be a lot easier and cheaper for America just to control us through trade. I mean, we're a tenth of their size. Um, there would be, if it, you know, if if if, if, if if the U.S. wanted to take us over, it would it would be very quick. We don't have a, I'm not I don't to hate on the military, but it, like the politicians have have underfunded the thing. You know, it, it would you know it, our best bet would be to retreat by about a hundred kilometers from the border and do a guerrilla war. That would be our only defense. But yeah, it's like the idea the U.S. will invade us. I don't think that's a, a risk. It, it'd be like, yeah, I don't think that would be politically okay. viable. Got it. Sounds good. James, your hands up. Go ahead. Oh, no, Dr. Anas, go, no, one second. Dr. Anas, go ahead. Um, I just want to uh, reply to that. Uh, today, I had a column published in the uh, Arabic Independent, and the title of it is The Hate of Oil. And the main argument I made, basically, is uh, uh, th- that uh, children being taught uh, at early age to hate oil. By the time they are in high school, they are done. And when they become leaders and they become uh, CEOs or political leaders or whatever, uh, there is no way, whatever, I mean, smart or not smart, it's really the issue is they've been taught for 12, 15 years to hate oil. And this is a big, big issue. And the only way you can change it if the oil producing countries and the oil companies go back and start teaching uh, and and go back to the, to the children basically and start from there and wait another 30 years to make that change. And uh, I went through uh, the donations of various oil companies and they are massive. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars over the last hundred and something years. 
And if you look at the donations of the oil companies and their efforts for the PR, uh, we find out that one mistake that's been done is that it was a promotion for the name of the oil, uh, the name of the company, not a promotion for the industry itself. That was a very big mistake. Uh, so it is very hard to change the minds of people who are 30 years old right now, but they spend all their life in school being taught to hate oil. So in this case, how, how did how did the, the oil and gas industry lose? How, how did they end up losing? You know, they, there's always talks about how, you know, oil and gas, they, they spend billions of dollars in subsidies and lobby, sorry, sorry, lobbying groups, lobbying efforts. How, how, how did, you know, how did the green movement uh, take over? And uh, I mean, like, were they just overfunded or like, how, how no, that... no, I, I listened that article, some of the mistakes, and, and I have a whole presentation on, on the mistakes that's been done. No, there were some tremendous mistakes being done by the oil industry. Uh, they really lived in their ivory tower and they thought they can do whatever they can. And they thought, uh, if I spend a lobbying, that will, that will do it, while the other side was spending time in schools. These, these are completely different different games. And spending time in school basically is way less costly than lobbying. Uh, so that was part of it. The other one is, is, is kind of funny because they did form nonprofit organizations to teach and, and try to uh, promote knowledge. But what those nonprofit did, they promoted knowledge on uh, within the communities that depend on oil and gas. They should have gone to Boulder, Colorado, for example, or went to California instead of coming to Dallas, Texas. So that was another uh, another mistake. The other mistake basically they've done basically is that they, when they donated money to universities, they went to geology departments and petroleum engineering departments and they donated money to them. Well, that was a mistake. They should have gone to liberal arts where all those uh, uh, not cases that we are talking about <laughs> and we encountered in, in recent days on Twitter, basically to teach them uh, w- what reality is. And instead of spending all the money uh, in the uh, petroleum engineering and geology departments. So there was a big, there were big mistakes historically being done by the oil companies. And I think it's just really remarkable how, you know, the leadership is usually, it, it's, you know, it's not technocrats. It's, um, and that's one of the things that you all, every conversation that we're having since this group is, is, is really, there's a lot of technical people in the group. So typically when I used to have these conversations, when I, I'm, I'm, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not as technical. So, you know, you can't really call them out on it, but what I'm just seeing in front of me is as soon as they call them out on it, these, these, these the, 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 it just falls apart. These guys either disappear, they block, or they freak out. It's totally bizarre. So I, I think maybe the fact that there's the people that are leading the leadership is predominated maybe guys from you know the, the liberal arts programs rather than, than, than the engineering side and, and the ge- geology side and, and, and so forth. Um, what's, what do we have here? We've got... I think you're right. Go yeah. ahead, Andrew. So, actually, yeah. so, so, so hard, if I may. So I think you all are pretty close to what's going on here, and 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 you're dancing. And and Doctor Anas, if he can please DM me, I, I need you to get on some uh, local media out in my marketplace. I think your message certainly needs to be heard. But 
having said that, so far, what we're doing is we're making the assumption that governments are always working on our best interest. And I'm sorry to say, and I'm going to open up the box, but there's a level of tyrann uh, tyrannical nature that's going on here. We have seen this before in the Bolshevik Revolution. We are being pushed and forced into the same direction. There are people that I know, and I don't like, want to quite go to the whole World Economic Forum controlling everything. But let's face facts. We have a lot of very intelligent individuals in this room. On the basis of economics, economics alone, it doesn't make sense, right? We have seen this transition before, especially in Canada. We have seen when we went from an agrarian lifestyle on the Canadian prairies and we changed to mechanized farms. Before that transition happened, we didn't go and shoot all of our horses and then say, hey, I guess we bought better buy tractors. No, we allowed that transition to happen naturally. But we're too often making the assumption that our government is still working in the best interest of us. And I say here that that is not the case. You know, clearly the, the oil and gas industry got caught on its own laurels. Nobody within that group seemed to have read the, the book, The Art of War. They underestimated the, the, the efforts of those opposing them. And as Dr. Hanas often mentioned here, that they, they came at them from the liberal arts programs. They came at them and they were well-funded and they underappreciated the effort that these people were going to put forward. They, they hooked up with indigenous groups. They, they made their, their force well heard. So it wasn't necessarily just on the pure basis of supply demand and the necessity of how do we actually keep our people, A, happy, comfortable and supplied. It's never been about that. Now, if you take at it, take this look at it, what if there's a perverse ver version of this, and maybe this fits into how Abe is missing some of the points there. What if it's all about control? What if it is about a new world order? What about if it is us all being complicit and falling in line? You know, let us all feel the pain. What kind of rhetoric is that from a, country you know, leader. You know that you mentioned that, James. This is what I found really interesting, all right? What I found really interesting is the big money. The big money has got to come from somewhere in yep. order to be able to push this. Absolutely. Now, we all know the biggest competitor for energy producers is other energy producers. Mm -hmm. So the question here is, in Canada, at least, I know that American energy companies were funding and were sabotaging infrastructure development in Canada. And, and so now I'm thinking to myself is, you know, during energy prices are low, everyone is playing these nasty games and um, the energy producers themselves help fund all of these wackos, yep. all right? And now, you know, once you get the ball rolling, it's not, once you get people moving, it's, you know, it's not easy to stop, especially if you, if you allocate so many dollars towards it, you know, you get the snowball rolling down the hill, it's mm -hmm. tough to get in the way. And this is, I think, was really remarkable was there's one company and I was looking at the, who owns the shareholders the largest shareholders for a Canadian energy company, I was just blown away by it. The largest shareholder for this energy company, he is one of the largest funders for Extinction Rebellion. All right? Just confused me. Just, I was like, what is going on here? You know, like these guys, and you know, you know, from Continental, 
Harold Hams, you know, made significant contributions towards, and then, you know, these guys, once they were done with the protests here, they started making their way down back to the U.S. So, you know, what, how complicit was, you know, can, uh, energy producers themselves mm-hmm. in, in, in shooting their own feet? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and like has been said often, right? Um, excuse me one second, I got to get a sip of water. <clears throat> All right, while you do that, let no, me no. Get... Okay, go ahead. Just, just straight to the point. What, what has often been done is the masses, by and large, it's the 80-20 split. There's only 20% of the populace wants to go and, and range on their own, right? Feels the confidence. Typically, entrepreneurs, historically, our educational system from Ivy League schools all the way down teaches us to be good workers, teaches us to stay in our lanes, teaches us not to buck the trend, you, you can't be that, that individual that gets outside of the norm. And that's what has happened. Cancel culture, woke nature, if you will, has put us in our place and, and told us to uh, stay in our place and, and follow suit. So that's why, like I said, to all of these points, it's one thing to look at this problem in the equation of it only being the fundamental nature of, of supply demand. It isn't. So who's the next beneficiary? Well, if we look at the nuclear industry, right, they're, they're the next one. It's never about a low carbon environment or energy production at a reasonable cost. It's, it's, it's always packaged up with this bow. And so at the end of the day, who's my nemesis? And, and, and there's all of these people, forces pushing us in, in the singular line. And that's why there's a lot of people really concerned about tyranny, the nature of tyranny, and even if we get an, um, another federal election in Canada, because the, the dark clouds are coming over top of us very quickly. And I will say that, and I thank you very much, Sahab. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go over to y, y2, Y2Z. Y2Z219. Yes. Oh, hi. Um, thank you for taking my question. Uh, I would like to ask uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Haji about uh, the, the Chinese SPR. So uh, you mentioned before that uh, China has a very large SPR and um, they can kind of play a seasonal game um, like in a, in a oligopolic way um, on the buy side, basically put a put a price cap um, on the crude because uh, basically they can manipulate using their SPR. Uh, now, given the uh, Ukraine and uh, Russian, uh, you know, the, the backdrop, so um, I, I think China would be would be happy to take more crude with, with huge discount from Russia, and they might be happy to expand their SPR. So how do you see um, like this going on? Like, is it become more like bearish or like is it just kind of enhance the China enhance China's ability to play the game in that way um, I'll, I'll love to hear your comment thanks thank you um, when uh, we talked about this in uh, early 2021 and what China might do one of the uh, caveat was, well, what if we have problems in the oil market and China cannot play the game as they plan? Because the game was you play it seasonally. Uh, just to clarify for those who do not know, uh, 
the SPR in the United States, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves in the in the United States, cannot be used unless uh, we have a case of emergency. But politicians, of course, their definition of emergency kind of different from place to place, from time to time, etc. But at least there are conditions in the United States. Those conditions do not apply to China. Uh, China basically can is free to do whatever it wants. China historically uh, built the SPR because a large percentage of their oil comes through the Malacca Strait. And the Chinese leadership are completely convinced that down the line, there will be a war and the Western nations will block the Malacca Strait. And therefore, they needed to build an SPR that's big enough to compensate for several months if Malacca Strait is closed. So they did build the SPR. But all of a sudden, they found out they can use it to monopolize prices simply. And they did change the market structure because the market structure historically for those who like the uh, economics jargon was an oligopoly we don't have competition in the oil market we have some sort of oligopoly it's not monopoly it's not a cartel it's an oligopoly but the chinese in the last two years well basically since 2018 it changed the market structure completely to what we call oligopsony Oligopsony is when you have buyers who are influential in the market. So historically, we have uh, sellers and producers who are influential. Now we have influential buyers. And the Chinese realized that game. And they said, okay, well, I can play the game of the SPR. And they can affect the market in two ways. First, if they use their own SPR, that's additional supply, and at the same time, their use of the SPR means lower imports. And we know historically, even we have statistical evidence to show when China lowers its imports, prices go down. So they played the game whenever it was possible. And they figured out they can play that seasonally, which means that in the summertime, they can use it and lower prices. And then when prices decline in the shoulder months, uh, they can they can buy it and and uh, restore or replenish what they used. Well, um, back now to 2021. One of the uh, uh, caveat was, well, what if we have events in the market where they cannot replenish simply because prices keep going up, and that's exactly what happened. So now they are buying the cheap Russian oil, but they are also mindful of the US and the EU sanctions. So based on my understanding, what they are doing right now is they are forcing the independent refiners, the teapot refiners, to give up their storage, to give up their crude inventories to the state-owned uh, companies. And then the independent refiners are buying the cheap oil from the Russians. My uh, interpretation of it is those uh, teapot refiners, the independent refiners, have no business with the United States. And they are not public companies and they don't have stocks being traded on the New York Stock Exchange. But the uh, government-owned companies are. And therefore, to keep them clean, so if they buy Russian oil, they don't want them to subject them to any sort of legal problems in the United States or Europe, what the government did basically is 
forced the uh, independent refiners to give up their inventories. And of course, that's price. I mean, it's not free uh, to the um, uh, national oil companies, if, if that's the right term. And then they are asking the teapot refiners to buy the cheap uh, Russian oil. So if there are any legal uh, ramification to that, no one can get to them because they are local companies. So we got uh, we got Stukoy, and then we got uh, JN Stukoy. Uh, Stucco hippie, yeah. So I'm in Saskatchewan. I'm in my mid 30s. I want to thank you guys for having these. I'm enjoying listening to them. Wanted to get in a little uh, comment here. I really like what the OG Canuck and uh, James were saying. They were hitting nails on the head um, as a oil, silver, gold, uranium investor uh, and conspiracy theorist and soon-to-be homesteader um, for reasons of my own since 2008. Um I'm just wondering if any of us are actually going to be able to capitalize on the fact that we are right because of, you know, Klaus Schwabi, WEF type, um, you know, world going forward where maybe we haven't invested in being able to mine copper and nickel and oil and everything else that we need to keep our economy going or to transition to a new one because, there isn't going to be one. So um, I had more to say, but James James hit most of it. But so, so, so your question is like, what? Like, just, let's, let's nail it down. What's the question? Do we actually think that we're going to be able to capitalize on being right? Are we going to be allowed to be right? Or are they going to be rug pulling from under us? Because we all know that like, you know, the numbers game is telling us that the trajectory we're on without drilling and or, are you referring to windfall taxes and, and, and nationalization? Is that what you're referring to? Um, no, not so much in the fact that they're not going to, the powers that be are not going to allow us the way of life that we have. So what's the solution? So, I mean, like... Well, my solution is homestead because I don't think that they're going to allow us. No, no. What, what I mean is, okay, let's say if they, if someone has a perception that they're not going to allow us, all right, so they're not going to allow us and what, what alternative are they going to provide for not allowing us? Uh, the gulag, maybe? I don't know. I'm a worst-case scenario kind of guy. <clears throat> I hedge my bets on, you know... No, no worries, Toko Hippie. Um... Uh, I don't know if Anas or Abe wanted to opine on that, but uh, we could just move on to JN. Uh, I have no clue. All right, go ahead, JN. Hi, thanks very much. Um, my question is for Anas, and um, I apologize if it was already covered. I, I joined a bit late, but uh, I was wondering if there could be a comment on um, whether or not there is an OPEC plus put kind of along the lines of a Fed put. And uh, if there's a view, uh, and maybe that's the bottom of, of the so-called sweet spot for the price of oil that I think, Anas, that you've, um, you've, you've, you've mentioned in the past. Um, I was just wondering if that, that OPEC plus put or the bottom range of the sweet spot, if, if that's moved, has that moved up higher? Um, thank you very much. 
thank you. The first point is, uh, just by definition, the sweet spot is uh, the price that is good for producers and consumers, and it has some other characteristics too. So it's not a prediction. It's not a forecast. It's, it's just where uh, uh, consumers uh, are happy, producers are happy. We are not kill killing substitutes. At the same time, we have enough returns for the uh, investors in the energy industry and oil and gas uh, to keep investing. And at the same time, it keeps the oil demand growing. So that's by definition. And it hasn't changed much despite all the changes in oil prices. But earlier, if you don't mind, I know this is being recorded, so you may go back like you expected. Basically, you, we talked about this, that we are in what we called uh, probably a hit and run scenario uh, where uh, the OPEC members and OPEC plus uh, really think that this could be the last bull market in the oil market and therefore they will take any price they can take. So, so here's a question, like how, I mean, you know, they all, they've got resources, they've got engineers, they've got doctors, they've got everything. How can they possibly look at all these numbers and think to themselves that this could actually be the last bull market? Um, th this, is, this is kind of very hard to explain because, especially when it comes to leaders, uh, we've seen this throughout history. Who are the advisors? And one of the uh, issues that if you look at the behavior of certain countries, you can see that most of the uh, advisors are from the banking industry, for example. And if they are from the banking industry, you, you, you can see the behavior of the country as a whole uh, in this case. Uh, so uh, it really depends on who are the advisors in this case, regardless of uh, whether they are, again, it seems like we are going back and forth on the idea of smart or not smart. Uh, but in my view, um, uh, people are influenced by their fields. And if they are bankers and the advisors are bankers, then the leadership basically will tilt that way. Specifically, and this is something that Kumar has really brought to my attention. He's always saying, you know, the leadership, you know, they've got to be technocrats. They're not, and, and so forth. If, if, the, if the leadership is being run by bankers, what do you typically get? Uh, probably Abe can answer that. You, you essentially uh, get a very uh, bureaucratic uh, approach to... Um, uh, to managing, um, you know, these companies. Um, look, uh, I think um, Dr. Anas said it uh, well, and, and, I, and I would agree. Um, you're likely not going to see um, much uh, increase in terms of investment. Um, that hit and run scenario, um, uh, I agree. And you're seeing in, actually in the Canadian oil patch, it's not that the uh, uh, Canadian companies are out uh, investing multi-billion dollar, uh, um, you know, capex over the next couple of years. Um, they're going to repatriate uh, capital back to their shareholders. So there's zero incentive. Uh, but the, the, the notion of the banker, uh, the, the way I would look at it is they're looking at returns. They're looking at max returns. Uh, they're managing their risks moving forward. And uh, I've said this, uh, if I were a CEO in Canada, 
there would be zero interest other than keeping um, these companies as efficient as possible with the least amount of CapEx in order to drive maximum shareholder value uh, over the near, near term. Because the reality is a lot of these companies are trading like they have zero terminal value. And when you have zero terminal value, you're essentially saying to them, discount the cash flows uh, over the duration of these uh, assets, uh, except for the fact that there's zero value at the end of this. So they're going to front load uh, all of these uh, returns, uh, knowing full well that on the back end, there's nothing uh, because they're not getting a proper valuation. So again, that becomes rather behavioral too. That drives uh, the behavior at, uh, at the CEO level. I mean, what would you do if you knew that you had zero terminal value? You certainly wouldn't be going out and, and investing uh, billions and billions of dollars in CapEx because you'd never be able to repatriate it back. You would have a negative return on capital. So what are they doing? What is everybody doing? Nothing. Essentially looking at incremental uh, supply. Uh, and uh, there's going to be a huge incentive in order to keep price at certain levels. And the one thing I've said, and I, I've said it many times, I am not a proponent of um, uh, oil pricing uh, going to $150 a barrel. In fact, I think it's destructive. Um, you want uh, oil to be very stable, uh, you know, uh, somewhere around uh, 85 to say $105 median uh, price, where it continues to be acceptable and uh, it mitigates the concept of substitution and demand destruction. And uh, you don't want narratives in the market where the governments are now coming out and, and essentially blasting the uh, sector and saying, you know, you guys are, are, not, uh, are not sensitive uh, because there's social issues, et cetera, et cetera. And we all know that that's just a red herring because uh, they didn't create the mess. Um, you know, capital has no ethnicity. It does not care what country it's in. Um, if, if, if capital had an ethnicity, uh, there would be no business for Apple to be invested billions and billions of dollars in China or Tesla or General Motors or Cat or Deer or any other uh, large multinational corporation. That's basically it. So they'll continue to operate, uh, which is in the best interest of a risk reward paradigm. So that's that. That's how I see things going, moving forward. I, I think maybe the the most remarkable thing from from that statement there is, you know, you want to see production give us a better valuation. All right, you know, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get the valuation. I think it's very naive, incredibly naive. But how? how I mean, you, you still envision. You don't. You still don't see. The valuation, even if oil's trading at 170, 180, and that's all, you know, just to get in 24 7 coverage. Well, it, have, like you, a, have you heard of such a thing as special dividends? That, that's what's going to happen. These companies are going to start buying their shares, and essentially they're going to drive a, a smaller float. And at the end of the day, uh, they're going to start issuing more and more st uh, special dividends because if you start running these, uh, the numbers, and they uh, are, are sitting with, uh, you know, retained earnings that are, you know, in the multi-billions and the tens of billions. What the hell are they going to do with it? There's no, um, there's no incentive to reinvest because the current narrative of the day isn't, isn't uh, expedient for them. It doesn't allow for a return. 
remember. No, but, but Abe, like there's always a market for everything. And now, like there is, you know, the privates right now in America are growing. So th there is, it's just a smaller b group of guys that are doing a growth and they're not meaningful to make a, you know, measurable uh, production. Somebody's so, got to uh, buy it, Soheb. Somebody uh, has to buy the asset. There has to be an exit. You know, it, look, I, I spend half my time, uh, you know, providing counsel to, uh, uh, you know, small tech startups. OK, sit on several boards. The reality I say to them, if you don't know who the hell the buyer is, if you don't understand the exit, you don't understand your business. And so you have to understand that the environment has changed. The narrative is much bigger than the valuation. Don't get confused with that. Don't 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 um, get sucked into this paradigm that, oh, we're going to see oil at 170 bucks and uh, therefore, you know, this is good. Actually, it's not a good thing. As I've said to you before, the narrative is that the terminal value doesn't exist. That's the problem. No, I acknowledge it's a bad thing, Abe. But what I'm saying is, you know, when the prices rise higher, you, you just no one can help themselves. It's, it ends up being free money. So, Soheb, may I make a comment? Sure. Go, go ahead, Ennis. I think Dr. both of you are talking about two different time frames. And that's probably true. Um, we're looking at things, at least my perspective is this. You have to look at it as um, we see that we, we're looking at mass transformational change uh, uh, on an economic level, but also on a social level. You know, Dr. Ness said it perfectly on, on uh, a prior discussion. He said, you know, something to the effect that um, the oil industry got rather complacent um, and the narrative shift was occurring uh, right before their, uh, their, their feet. And, you know, there's another piece to this that we're not really uh, fully discussing. And that is that we know that there's uh, going to be pain in the market. There's no question. But that is also going to continue to further um, the, the concept of substitution. This is not necessarily a great thing as an investor. I'm looking at it as an investor. Let's not confuse the social aspect and the, 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 the eco uh, energy uh, uh, paradigm here. I'm just looking at it purely from a dollars and cents perspective. And that is that the behavior and the narrative continues to, to be this way. And so for the next 10 years, especially for companies that have, you know, a, a reserve life of, say, 20 or 25 years, they are fighting against the tide. This is what I'm trying to explain. And somebody said it perfectly. I think it was um, uh, um, uh, 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 it'll come to me. But the narrative was this uh, rich people sell too early and poor people stick around too long. That's really what this narrative is all about as an investor. Don't overstay, uh, you know, the party, because at some point in time, you're going to get killed. Um, and so you have to look at the dynamics of the sector itself. And my biggest fear is this, is that the, the narrative shift continues to be contra, uh, irregardless of the fact that you, you have, um, you know, potentially uh, longer term structural supply deficits because you've had no capex over the last 10 15 years or very little of it in terms of driving new supply sources and there's zero incentive to continue to drive that into the future because they have a narrative that's killing them so you see it in the canadian oil patch people have asked well why are the canadian oil stocks really really cheap well there's 
many reasons why they're cheap. One of which is the fact that the current narrative and the thinking and the perception is that these companies don't have a long life. It doesn't mean it's right. It means, and who the hell am I to judge? The market will decide for us. You know, people say, when you, when you chase the market uh, and people say, gee, you know, I'm so pissed off because this company's trading at this. I don't give a shit. It's the tape that, that drives the, the narrative. It's not me. And I think we need to be very, very mindful as investors uh, to be able to see this uh, because these, there's a major consequences to these prices, especially if they become sustained at a very, very high level, which I never wanted because you always want to be under the radar, but just enough that you're still driving a ton of free cash flow without major disruption. And that's the, re the reason if the reason I say something's got to give because at some point it, the making money becomes too easy. If a group of ten guys could come together or twenty guys and put a million dollars for a drilling program and start pulling barrels out of the ground, small micro cap, teeny weeny company, all right, yep. and you can cover, you know, you, you can you know, your payback period ends up being two three months, uh, depending on where prices can be. It, just, it ends up being the best investment in the world. And at yeah, some so you drive more supply. You'll drive more supply. And the other thing that we're all not necessarily discussing is the regulatory aspect of this. Don't think for a nanosecond that this is just going to be easy sailing. It's not going to work that way. You know, I envision that you'll probably get some incremental supply um, uh, coming on stream, you know, from uh, exactly the behavior that you're, you're mentioning. OK, people take advantage of the fact that there's opportunity. They will drive the opportunity. But make no mistake, the narrative continues to be contra. And that's why a lot of these companies continue to trade at a discount to free cash flow in terms of, in terms of future cash flows because there's zero terminal value. And so the real question you need to ask yourself, and I ask myself, is where are the companies, which companies are going to be driving a real shareholder return uh, you know, either through special dividends, uh, either just by their behavior, how they're how they're managing uh, capex, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's this is the way it is. I'm not going to be around for the next 25 years trying to figure out whether the the oil trade has gone this this way or that way. In fact, I don't care. I'm looking at it as okay. So what are the um, uh, you know what are the risks uh, over the next uh, foreseeable future? Uh, what are they? You know, what's the reality on the ground? What could change things? And I think, uh, the, 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 you know, what I said to you before, wealthy people get out of trades early. Poor people stay in them too long. And that's exactly what I've learned over the years. And, and, and how, how long would that, would, would that, you know, how long would long look like? You know, I mean, it looks like it, to bring meaningful production is three, four years. So at least minimum three to four years. Honestly, uh, I'll answer the question the way my, my late father used to say to me when I used to ask a question that was very open-ended. He would say, son, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> but that actually goes to the question that I was asking earlier, right? Because if, you know, we were all on these spaces maybe even just a mere couple weeks ago, and we were just all saying we didn't want this price of oil to spike up so high. Because then you knew, right, like then the jig would be up. But, you know, now we have a situation where, you know, um, 
the administration in the U.S. is is making noise about another SPR release and the like. And I do think it's really interesting to hear, you know, on the one hand, that Dr. Anas is talking about how the perspective in the Middle East is you you just got one more shot at this, got to make hay when the sun is shining. And I think Abe, you, you said the same thing, right? Like the the situation with the Canadian EMPs, right, is that they're in a terminal business. But basically, you know, both the Saudis or the OPEC and 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 the Canadian EMPs, they're all saying the same thing. This is a terminal business. If all the players recognize that it's a terminal business, and if we all recognize that we don't need this price to kind of skyrocket immediately all at once, you in order to be able to extract all the value that, as we want to get out of it, either as investors or as producers, I just was I just want to get it back to my original question. You know, like those those players like OPEC Plus that do view um, themselves as a stabilizing force in the market, you know, I just have to think that they have in mind a floor, right? One where it it makes them a lot of money and it 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 elongates like the path by which, you know, the, the path by which the sun shines longer, so to speak, so that they can make as much money as possible to keep things stable. Um, I think Dr. Anas, you mentioned that your, your sweet spot is a little bit of a different construct. So maybe if I could just ask the question a different way, right? Like, um, you know, what price do you think OPEC will just say, no, we're not going to let it go below that with the view that this is their last shot at this, at this apple, or at least that's their perspective. And with the view that they want to elongate it as much as possible to make as much money as possible. I think Dr. Anash should answer that question. This is well above my pay grade because this is this is something that's more regional um, in terms of the thinking, and I I can't uh, I, I can't answer it. I, I don't know what, what what's in the, what, what's in their mind, even from a cultural perspective, that drives that that their behavior. But I will just say one one thing to this, and that is that um, culture aside. Um, and when I say culture, it's the it's the culture on the ground. It's the thinking. It's the behavior. I mean, Canadians, we have a certain behavior. Americans have a certain behavior. We're all rather distinct. Um, but there's one common language. And the common language in all of this is that um, no one is going to be stupid. No one is going to be an idiot. They want longevity. They want to be able to drive as much consumption uh, without mass disruption. That's really the thinking. And to kind of answer your question, or maybe ask you a question, if OPEC Plus had so much power at that particular time, why did oil trade in the 30s um, just recently, you know, prior to COVID a few years before that? There's a lot of there's a lot of things in play. I think what's changed in 2022 is that we have we've had COVID, we've had supply chain mess. We continue to have exasperated supply chain issues. You've got 40-year high um, uh, inflation. You've had maximum amount of liquidity into into the um, uh, in global markets. You've had historic negative capital driving uh, consumption, which means in, tr in true reality, you've never had any real organic uh, GDP growth. It's been manufactured 
And this is what's super dangerous, uh, given the fact that you now you're sitting at elevated levels because somebody asked a question, gee, if it's so if we're so susceptible at, a, at 85 or 90 or 95 dollar oil at a sustained level, my God, I mean, what what is going on? Well, now you understand that this is the backdrop. Look, you know, I'll, I'll stop with this. Cycles have a beginning and they have an end. Unfortunately, if you're a, if you study cycles, you st- you begin to understand that the last couple of cycles, we've had very very little time in between a cycle end and a cycle beginning, because central governments, central banks, I apologize, around the world have manufactured supposedly soft landing transition. Unfortunately, the excess that have occurred in every single cycle never got washed out. It just got extended to the new cycle. And now we have the mother of all excess, and that's the bloody problem. That's the backdrop with all of this. And now you have exogenous factors like energy that's very inflationary and COVID and other things that have been occurred as a result of it that have now, as a sum have become too big to ignore and too problematic. And that's, these are the issues that are going on in the backdrop. So at some point, I would suspect, like every other cycle, there will be an element of demand destruction, whether you like it or not, because people will just say, I can't drive anymore. I won't drive anymore. I'll carpool. I will do this. I will do that. I'll take public transit eventually things come to some reversion. I just don't know when. I don't know what the the damn price looks like. That's why I say to people, you can't fall in love with a trade because you don't know what will change. And often in the oil market, because I've been in commodities, they change quickly. They don't, nobody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, uh, this is going to happen. And the, uh, you know, you're going to get a fallout. But, but Abe, Abe, here's a question. I mean, you know that, you know, this structural issue requires a lot of OPEX uh, expenditures and then it takes time for those to come online. So what? there is a there is like a minimum time frame where you can look and no say, one okay, can well, tell you that. So hey, no one can tell you. Yes. It, but where would the oil come from then? Technically speaking, you're correct. It's not like, again, we've argued the same point when I say we've debated the whole concept of of immediacy. Demand is immediate. At some point, you're going to uh, say, well, you're right. Where the hell is it going to come from? I don't know where it's going to come from. But what I do know that's very powerful is sentiment change is incredibly powerful. Okay, so it's not going to take much. And I probably I'll tell you the next big narrative that I'm going that I'm prepared uh, to, to see in the, in the market is going to be governments telling you um, uh, uh, you can only drive your car uh, on an off, uh, you know, odd and even. Uh, you, you used to see this a lot in Greece, for example. Uh, they would say, and this was because of pollution controls, they used to say you can only drive your car in Athens if you're, if you're an odd plate or, or an even. It would go one or the other. You know, these things are like... Or, or, or stay at home to flatten the gas curve. Whatever. They're going to do whatever the hell it takes because it's unpalatable. You have to understand when you're sitting at a central uh, as a as a central bank or uh, or a leader of a country and you're dealing with this. 
I would not want their jobs today because the reality is the exits are, first of all, there are no exits. I think that it's now, um, you know, any self-respecting, uh, respected, uh, you know, economist or, um, you know, intellectual, if you will, who understands what the hell is going on will tell you that the likelihood of a soft landing is almost zero now. And the real reason is because we never dealt with the cycles prior. We extended them and we just, ex we played the game. We pretend, we, we did the extend and pretend game, except now the excess is way too much. When was the last time you saw a cycle that produced in almost every single asset class an overvaluation everywhere? I, in my 56 years, I have never, ever, seen this kind of crazy in my life. And I'm pretty astute when it comes to uh, capital markets. Very astute. I worked in 20 years in the capital markets. It's, I've never seen it like this. This is the problem. I think your point on cycles... Uh, JN, just please, JN, one second, please. Hashtag oil, go ahead. Thank you for that, Soheb. Nice to see the members of the Canadian Oil Mafia and our friends, Abe and, and Dr. Anas. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Abe, I just want to uh, respond to what, you, what you're saying um, because I'm hearing thoughts earlier and, and obviously, you know, there the, are the facts that are being stated, which is complete underinvestment, which I think we all agree on globally. And yet, uh, like as Dr. Anas says, the use of energy and oil will be for decades, right? Whether we want to look at it from a vehicle perspective, the transportation, heating, you name it. Of course, technology and innovation is going to come. And I think you're right to suggest that, you know, you don't need to necessarily go, um, you know, for example, you know, stay in the trade for an indefinite period of time if you don't have an own personal plan. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. But when you're asking about, you know, overvaluation, over the market that I look at, uh, and the one that you'd understand probably the best is the commercial real estate market. When you're in these AAA pieces of office property, rental property, multi-unit residential income property, you know, look at the cap, cap rates. Yeah, they're cap 2%. Rate. They're 1%. Yeah. They're negative. I know. Correct. Absolutely. Right. And so the cost of capital for a, you know, a real can or an H&R, you know, all these companies, you know mm -hmm. them. They can, you know, they they can raise capital at, at under one percent, and and a two percent cap rate is something that's palatable palatable to them, but not the rest. And obviously, for those of you who are not Abe on the call, the reason you know you you have cap rates the way they are is because everybody's chasing yield and everyone's chasing a long life asset, which is obviously inflation protected and something that you know. Let's imagine it this way: if interest rates go up. You know, housing becomes unaffordable for first-time home buyers. They have to rent, and so um, you know these these long-life assets, multi-unit residential projects, end up getting completely overvalued, and the cap rate gets squeezed. To what Abe is saying, and when I think of oil, um, and again, you know, you you have to take the biases of somebody who has the hashtag oil god name. I look at this almost in a in a comparable way, in a sense that. There's absolutely nothing else being developed. So if you're in AAA Toronto, AAA Vancouver, AAA Chicago, right? There's no more development in theory going on there. And you can almost, in my opinion, draw a parallel, except the cap rates in the Canadian oil sand space are somewhere along the line 15 to 30%, depending on obviously the company that you're looking at. So I think where I... 
I, I want to, ch- I'm not challenging you necessarily from a personal perspective, but what I would implore you to think about is that in a rising interest rate market, you know, there are still a subset of the entire global population to rely on income and income you know, in the form of a cap, obviously from a real estate perspective is a cap rate. And obviously from, you know, these Canadian oil sands company, and you said it best, the free cash flow, the special dividends. And, and this is where, you know, I, I think we have to be patient because Canada is in a situation where we might have, uh, you know, a hippie uh, pot smoking, which I love, uh, surfing prime minister who, you know, is in it for the, what we call the yearbook photo. But he's not going to be here forever. And and really, when you think about the Canadian economy, we can't pivot into another area. Like, we don't have the tech innovation. We don't have, you know, the appetite to just start mining, you know, commodities and whatnot. So I really think that, you know, the more I hear you and others talk about how long oil is going to stick around and that the fact that nobody else is going to be developing it, I start to draw that parallel to commercial real estate just with respect to cap rates. And I just want to ask you for your comment on that. Thank you. So, I mean, again, I think to some degree we're in violent agreement. I think what Dr. Anas said as well is that, you know, we're debating the time frame and everyone's time frame is going to be exceptionally different. I mean, you know, after, I don't know, 27, 28 years um, understanding capital markets and, and really the markets, if you will, and not really 28 years I've been in it. Let's just say I've got a much better handle the last 10 years, because if you don't get screwed a few times, you don't learn and you start to see things very, very differently. And so the reality is that, you know, we all know this, uh, you know, nothing lasts forever. These trades don't go on indefinitely. Um, at some point, there is some form of reversion. There are changes. And the maximum value that you would have achieved, you know, occur within a certain time frame. Often they're not, uh, you know, they're not a, a 10 or 15 year horizon. Very, very rare. You get pullbacks, you get reversion, you get all sorts of exogenous factors that, that impact the, um, the thesis. I'll give you another example. At some point in time, okay, because history always repeats itself, and often we, we learn little from history because we don't pay attention to the lessons. We forget, and that's the weakness of human behavior. That's the real biggest weakness is that. And what happens is that you get a repeat, okay? You may find ourselves that, hey, you know, it's no longer inflationary. Who knows after a period of time? And the paradigm shift changes and capital moves. This is why I've said that it's capital doesn't give a shit about a sector. It doesn't give a shit about ethnicity. It doesn't care about anything. It's looking for max risk reward paradigm and it's quite efficient. And so what I'm saying is that, sure, I agree that um, at this juncture, uh, you know, traditional fossil f- fuels will probably be a- a- around for quite some time. But I personally am not going to stick around for the entire party because I've learned that there comes to a point where you get max value, okay, and then you get what is called diminishing returns because at some point the narrative shifts become too damn big and it doesn't matter. They become value traps even though they continue to drive massive free cash flow. And this is why I say to you that, 
at some point in time, you're going to have to differentiate very, very careful as to which companies are going uh, have a different narrative, have a different uh, perspective, and are basically saying, screw it, we're going to repatriate, we're going to give back, uh, you know, investors uh, a, a massive return because the last 10 years has been horrible for a lot of these companies. I wasn't overly invested in oil and gas over the last 10 years, but I was certainly in the commodity side. And let me tell you, they didn't perform much better. Yes, so, I appreciate it. So, <clears throat> let's, uh, I want to do this real quick, if I may. Uh, Kumar, you know, when you were earlier in the conversation without you being here, we were talking about how uh, we could get to a point where we can get to, you know, energy crisis in, the, in Europe, energy pr uh, prices ripping around the world, and the narrative isn't really much ch changing uh, on the political sphere. And you have, something you've always said is, um, it's this is not leadership. It's not being led by the technocrats. When you get leadership by the technocrats, you get things that are more, um, they're, they're, they're more driven based on an, a solid understanding of, of, of how energy markets or how things work. Uh, in general. Kumar, did you, do you have anything you wanted to add or, or share in this regards or any questions you wanted to ask at all? I don't know how deep the rabbit hole of, you know, they've, the renew, I, I always say the renewables ayatollahs have uh, taken over every political, technical, and economic institution of power. And I don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes. And I don't know what all their monetary motivations are. And I don't know who's funding it. But it's clear to me that they have a lot of control. I haven't had to interact with a lot of them. I, I did in Silicon Valley, but, you know, I would just tell them they're clowns. But re really what we need is, you know, if Dr. Anas and, and, and folks like Abe, who have a lot of experience, if they would run for politics, uh, I would sleep easier. Okay. And, uh, so, Dr. Anas, this is a question for you. In terms of catalysts, you know, do you always you really whenever – you reach, you know, when, when fracking first came into play, you know, it was it was laughed at by many of the skeptics, fellow engineers. Oh, no way. There's no way you could, you know, get this type of oil from this type of rock. And, you know, it, it reached to a point where it, it, it took a couple of catalysts to just flip the switch and people went from skeptics to believer. Um, for this type of thing, for people to get to a point from, oh, wait a minute, this is totally the wrong way and to flip. Like, are there any key catalysts? maybe this summer perhaps if we overshoot past 150 or anything like that um, that you think would get people to stop in their or get leaders global leaders to stop in their tracks and um and and, and make some sort of pivot Dr. Uh, a couple, couple of points here if we look at the development of technologies that are widely adopted worldwide in the last 300 years we see that they have certain characteristics. And strangely enough, all those technologies were market-driven, not government-driven. Now, I understand some people will say, well, the government developed the Internet and all this stuff, but it was really the, the, uh, the underlying was market forces. And if you look at the adoption of cars versus horses and carriages, for example, or smartphones over landlines, etc. And one of the uh, one of the characteristics of these things uh, that they uh, they kind of save time 
and at the same time, their value added is priceless. So this is on the demand side for the consumer when we look at the change in behavior. When it comes to shale and the production, it's the same principles, but you have to flip them on the other side. When we look at uh, shale, for example, uh, people realize that the value added was massive, accompanied by the fact that the resource was very large. Uh, and there was a market for it. But what's strange about it is, and, and people can go and check it out, the government, the EIA in particular, did not even acknowledge the existence of shale gas until the end of 2008. So it was the government did not realize it until like three years later. So when we talk about catalyst uh, uh, in this case, you are talking, you, you really got to look at what's going on on the ground, not what government policy is. And, and this is uh, uh, when Komar basically talked about the uh, green ayatollahs and all that stuff. Uh, yes, uh, we might end up with government regulators and politicians, etc. But what goes on the ground, those guys may not know until later on. And that's what happened with shale. It took the U.S. government three years to recognize uh, that there is a shale revolution going on in this case. Yeah, if I can just say something uh, on that, like this idea that society needs to be led by these omniscient technocrats is just preposterous. Like that's not how society works. Movements come about because the population wants it and politicians are masters of finding a parade and jumping in front of it and claiming credit for the movement. And this, this goes to what Anas is saying. The government will slowly come to realize that the people won't put up with um, rising energy prices and they're going to realize that far too late. And they're going to be forced to um, realize that energy security is more important than their ESG nonsense. And they're going to be, their hand will be forced. They'll have Ray to Mac, change their policies. Ray Mac, what do you think would need to happen for that to, to, to take place? Well, I think you see it happening right now with Ukraine and you see the government scrambling right now with these subsidies to consumers and they're already behind the eight ball and it's only going to get worse. No, and I think no, but Raymac, like actual solutions, like addressing the solution, which is focusing on increased supply production rather than these bandage operations. The solution is for government to get out of the way, and they're slowly realizing yeah, that. Yeah. So that's the question, what, yeah. So the question is, what do you think it would take for governments to get out of the way? People being like fed up with uh, rising energy prices. They're not going to put up with having to pay more to heat their home, more to drive. We live in a huge country. Like I just visited. Uh, I'm from Newfoundland, and I had to go visit my mother. She was very ill. I had to drive there, and I had to cross a ferry, like cross the to Nova Scotia on a ferry, 
which uses diesel like we live in a big country you can't like switch to electric cars my 25 hour drive would have taken four days if i had to drive an electric car like it's just that's going to be the impetus people you know so essentially essentially what you know avid mentioned previously in our rooms is the pain trade we just need enough pain I think so, yeah. Got it. Okay. So, folks, uh, we're going to bring this room to a wrap here uh, uh, real quick. Uh, we appreciate all the audiences. Uh, we appreciate all the speakers. We appreciate everybody. Uh, I'm going to pass it off to Hashtag Oil, uh, God, and maybe, maybe perhaps Abdaziz, if we can hear a couple of words, Kumar from you. And then, um, you know, and then and then we could uh, start to wind this down. Um, uh, hashtag, oil, uh, hashtag Oil God, go ahead. Thank you, Sohaib. And Ray, um, obviously on behalf of the Canadian Oil Mafia, we're sorry to hear about your mother, and I hope that she obviously feels better. And, and so obviously the rest of the people in this room never lots of fun. Um, but, you know, I, I, I want to be real when I when I tell you something. You know, Canadians, you're not going to have a choice. And, and I think this is what, you know, the reality is. I mean, I listen to these conversations in this room about people aren't going to do this and people aren't going to do that. And I'm not necessarily picking on your logic, but we live in a society where, you know, we just had COVID-19 lockdowns and you've had people and we all know people that even six months before it was, you know, the feeling that we all have today, we're already booking the trip to Mexico and, you know, they were getting the stink eye from the friends and, oh my God, I can't believe you're going. I, I think the idea that the government's you know, they may try and they may continue to do things, but this idea that they're going to just go Monday through Thursday, you know, if your name starts with an A or an E or a J, you know, go ahead and, you know, drive. I don't, I, I think that the governments are going to learn that people just don't, don't have that. They don't have that control. And, and again, I'm not saying they're not going to try. Uh, but I just don't think they understand the, the thirst for people to go out and actually feel autonomous. And what, what COVID has done is it actually made people feel for the first time, um, you know, that the autonomy had been taken away from them. And, you know, there are going to be, I think the conclusion is there's just going to be a widening gap of the people that are going to be the haves versus the have-nots, right? So, you know, unfortunately, driving will become more expensive. There'll be people who won't really impact them that much. Interest rates go up, it won't impact the people that are not that as interest rate sensitive. And unfortunately, this is what happens when you have years of interest rates being low. You had an 08, 09, where a great deal of wealthy people took advantage of low rates. Those people got bailed out going during actually into COVID, because if you remember, interest rates were going up in 2018 and COVID absolutely bailed out the people that were over leveraged. And guess what happened? Asset prices continued to go higher, right? And so um, my, my, my take is, is this, I just want to share that. So, hey, uh, let's pass it around and then happy to close the room at your convenience. Absolutely. Just, yeah, um what we'll do is, you know, see Kumar if you have anything to say. Um, uh, maybe we might go over down to David, but uh, we might have exhausted the conversation here. We really went in depth, uh, covered it all. I guess maybe the other question I may have is uh, this leak, which is the, the reason the purpose of starting a room, uh, the SPR uh, release uh, leak from the U.S., how is that supposed to incentivize OPEC nations to produce more? Because if... If, if, if what it does, if the effect it has on markets, 
is lower the price, then that, that would be the opposite effect. I mean, if you don't want them to increase production, you would you would do an SPR uh, leak, uh, a release leak, right? Uh, uh, Dr. Anas, is that a question uh, you'd be able to give us a hand with? Well, generally speaking, one of the issues that been discussed even like 25 years ago on the effectiveness of the SPR, uh, what if OPEC members decided to cut production in the equivalent amount of the SPR? Uh, so uh, that's kind of dilute the impact of it anyway. Luckily, historically, most of the SPR releases were done uh, by coordination. So Saudi Arabia was involved in the decision to release oil from the SPR historically. Uh, but things were different in recent, in recent years. Uh, so that's one. So the issue is well, it's really cutting production, not increasing production. Uh, the other issue is, and I think that's where I think we mentioned this at the beginning of the discussion, uh, that uh, the SPR is paid by the uh, U.S. taxpayers. And what we are seeing right now is it's being exported to the rest of the world. And there is a possibility if this SPR happened, because this was still, still a rumor, it's a leak, but if this is going to happen, we might see the uh, record high oil exports uh, as a result of this. So the U.S. taxpayer basically is subsidizing the rest of the world. One of our colleagues earlier mentioned um, that it applies to LNG too, and that's absolutely correct, that the U.S. taxpayer basically uh, is also subsidizing uh, gas consumers around the world. And the other fact of this related to it is that the uh, share revolution, while between 2014 and now, almost now, um, uh, investors lost a lot of money in shale since 2014, those investors literally subsidized the rest of the world by providing cheap oil and cheap gas. So, hey. So what we'll do now is, David, go ahead, and then after that, we're going to bring this room to an end here. David, go ahead. Uh, hi. Uh, first point, yeah, the politicians never do the right thing. I mean, they canceled F-35s, and then 10 years later, they approve them again. Anyway, my question is for Ennis. Um, you, you're, you're, uh, and it kind of relates to what Abe says about how long the string is. With uh, the demand in like India and China and, and those other places trying to get up to Western standards, how how long do you think this goes till we get to a, a like a demand toppiness? I'm not asking for like the top top, but you know when around when would you see that? And and uh, so because like you said, there's cycles. You, Eric is. Eric Nettles said it's going to be a five to ten or twenty year cycle. Uh, are you talking about like peak peak oil demand? Yeah, to get to get the third, I guess to call for lack of a better word, third world to Western standards. Okay. Um, the, um, in my model, basically, I have a long term outlook until twenty fifty, and throughout the outlook, there is no peak. Period. And uh, that, of course, involves um, uh, 
countries, not only uh, India and China, uh, simply, I mean, the demand in those countries is going to, or the growth in demand in those countries is going to slow down. Uh, but uh, the big mammoth in their own basically is Africa. And it's really the rise of Africa and what are the changes that are going to uh, uh, take place and the massive energy demand coming out of it uh, is going to be really large. And uh, here I would like to make a joke that Suhaib is familiar with and some of our friends uh, in Alberta uh, that uh, we had a discussion with this guy the other day who started talking about India and I asked him if he's been in India before. And uh, uh, and and his answer was, "Do I have to be in, uh, to go to India to be an, an Indian expert, or an India expert?" Uh, the same thing happened with a Dutch guy who never been in Africa, and he was promoting the idea that Africans should switch to electric vehicles. Uh, so the uh, the idea here is we do have this massive demand coming out of those areas where there is no infrastructure, there is literally nothing. Uh, uh, so uh, in, based on my model, there is no uh, peak uh, demand at all. If you look at OPEC, OPEC thinks that, um, um, and this is kind of, um, I think there is some politics involved in it, uh, that demand will peak in the mid-30s and it will be flat after that. So there is no, basically that's where the peak is. But it's not going to decline. Uh, not everyone sees it that way, but the those who see oil demand peaking uh, before 2050, they have some major, major flaws in their forecasts, and there are some really major problems in the way uh, they conducted the analysis. At the same time, they have uh, made some major assumptions that will never materialize uh, some really crazy uh, assumptions uh, and that reminds me of a study uh, on the future of evs where uh, uh, this study basically we're talking about how evs are going to take over the world and how they are cheaper than others uh, and uh, when i contacted the guy and i told him how he made those assumptions he said he assumed that all cars will run 24 7 like taxis so you can see how crazy those assumptions are. So, hey. Yeah, it's like they say, assume you make an ass out of you and me, right? Okay, thank you very much for your... your... You're welcome. And with that, we're going to wrap it up and bring the room to a close. Anybody who's got any final or closing statements uh, could go ahead and, 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 and share them. Um, or, or we're just going to start and get laid on my end here. Uh, Kumar uh, or anyone else, um, feel free. Uh, hashtag oil. Did you want to go ahead and uh, share anything with us before we close here? Yeah, yeah. I want to ask Doctor and ask one last question, if I may. So, Doctor and ask, you know, I sit back and and I I put myself in the shoes of the head of the Saudi in in OPEC, um, and I perhaps I I'm mispronouncing his name, but the Crown, um. The prince, uh, so hey, help me out. I know you. Aziz bin Salman. Aziz, I, I can think of a more steady hand to obviously influence, uh, you know, the Saudis, and, and obviously be a steward of uh, of sort of you know oil direction in, in supply and demand and understanding the world. In just just if you could, 
if you were, if we were behind closed doors today, and he was reading these potential leaks of this SPR, is this somebody who'd be smiling with glee at absolutely how short sighted the Biden administration is, or is he looking around the room and telling his colleagues we're dealing with an absolute mad person? Who's looking to ignite the price of oil to such a point where we're all in trouble? I th- I think he uh, he said it once in one of at the end of one of the OPEC meetings at a, a press conference. Make my day. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. And 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 with that, so hey, uh, and and everybody in this room, I'd like to bring this to a close. Um, I guess, you know, based on that question, Ashton, we'll, we'll get back to it just to just spark something else. Typically in leadership, you want to bring your best foot forward. All right. So the Saudis have done that by getting uh, Ablaziz to to run the energy um, ministry uh, and, and, and handle business. Uh, the Russians have done it. The Chinese have done it. Why do you think, uh, you know, North America, we, we you know, we're putting our worst foot forward and not our best foot forward and we're getting absolutely taken to the cleaners by um by 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 not putting our best foot forward i'm going to give inexperience but i'm going to ask dr nas to answer it because obviously secretary granholm you know is one fry short of a happy meal uh, but I just, I just don't see these people with much experience to understand. She you know. didn't know. I mean, it blew my mind. She did not know, like basic information, like just basic stuff, like like that. You know, people in this space would know. She didn't know. It was bizarre, really bizarre. Um, I think we should focus on the uh, deeper issues that we have a whole education system. Uh, around the world that is against uh, the oil industry. It's not only about a few people or few people in power who do not understand the industry. And and the serious question is really what the industry should do and the oil producing countries should do to counter this attack that's coming through the education system. You go to universities, you go to high schools, you go to elementary schools. What do you do? And and this is really a serious uh, a serious issue, and we've seen it uh, in in so many ways, where children coming back home crying because their parent their their father worked in the oil industry. So the the impact is massive. It's huge. It's profound. And if the oil industry is not going to do anything about it, and they are going to stay in their ivory tower, uh, I think the situation is going to get worse and worse. Uh, Anas, if with respect, to, uh, Ray, I think Ray Mac, that's sort of so, Raymac. Sorry, one second. I'm just going to pass it off to hashtag Oil, who's going to wrap up the room for us. Um, it's, it's getting really uh, late. For okay, I just wanted to say one thing. He sort of answered your question there. That's the reason why the people in power are who they are, because they're the product of what Anas was just saying. Thank you. Well, well, okay. Well, thank you. I mean, the only thing I would challenge on that is. You know, Joe Biden is closer to the dinosaurs than he is in in sort of modernity. So, not too sure, you know, how that adds up. But I but I appreciate where you're going. And the good news with Doctor what Doctor Nasser said is largely, you know, not just the mission of the Canadian oil mafia to 
spread the education, spread the awareness of energy ignorance. But luckily for us, Soheb is such a well-spoken individual with such a fanfare. We should start to send him to elementary schools. And Soheb, we're going to start to get you to do PowerPoint presentations for the children. And perhaps at Christmas, you can, you know, dress up as Santa Claus and, you know, bring a barrel of oil with you and start to subliminally message them. But Thank you. With that, uh, we're going to go to the, uh, the we're going to end it off with uh, uh, your, 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 your ode and uh, we'll see everyone in future rooms. Yes. So so before I do the ode, the Canadian Oil Mafia would like to take an opportunity to recognize some of our key uh, speakers today. Dr. Adnas uh, Alahaji, uh, Abe, always a friend of the Canadian Oil Mafia. Kumar, nice to see you as well. Uh, shout out to Josh Schmuckatelli, Mark Little, Victor the Pelican, uh, Lindsay over in British Columbia. She drills one of the smartest gals down in the United States when it must follow when it comes to understanding the United States market. Uh, Elon, lots of friends of the Canadian oil mafia who have come and gone. If you'd like to join us, please hashtag COM, spread the message of energy and awareness and ignorance, of course. And with that, all hail. And, and Abdulaziz as well. You missed him. He's on the stage show. Uh, Abdulaziz is an absolute must follow. And thank you for that, Soheb. Again, all hail. All hail the Canadian oil mafia. Invest in the land of the free. From sea to sky, we know the commodity you rely on to get from A to B. Block our pipelines. Increase your fiscal debt. It will be you that soon will see. Canadian oil mafia, Canadian oil mafia, free cash flow is the way to save thee. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I want to take this opportunity to thank Soheb, a standing ovation on Twitter, if there ever is one, for somebody who continues to spend hours and hours a day moderating these things in an absolutely masterful way uh, who brings such incredible speakers to the room so hey none of this would be done without you on behalf of the canadian oil mafia thank you for all you do good night everybody